3: Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk.
0: Board of Trustees will not change the name of the iconic Tillman Hall. Here's WYFF News 4's Corey Davis in Clemson.
4: The name of the iconic building on the hill is safe for now. Controversy over a name change is now part of history of one of the oldest buildings at Clemson University.
5: I'm from the area, so I've always looked at Clemson.
4: Eva Diaz is a freshman on campus.
5: I'm Mexican-American, so, you know, I have a lot of um, diversity in my life.
4: Diversity is why the faculty Senate leaders of departments across campus overwhelmingly voted for a recommendation to rename Tillman Hall. We can't change the past we don't seek to hide the past, but we certainly seek to take control of the future. Eva is part of that future, and a building named after Ben Tillman, a vocal racist, doesn't bother her
5: Recruiting um, diverse people, I think it's not in the name of the building I mean I don't think that's going to make a
6: big statement the
4: controversy has been a hot topic around campus
6: um i do not agree with the name change i think that TILLMAN hall is a historic name to clemson and it means a lot to me
5: i support the name change because um as you know behind it it was the guy who really didn't want you know, African-Americans to be
4: here. The hall was originally called main building, but in 1946 it was renamed after former South Carolina governor Ben Tillman. I know it's the signature of the campus and all, but uh, it really don't make a difference for me. Leaders of the faculty are hoping that in time Tillman's legacy would be placed on historical markers instead of Clemson's landmark building.
0: That's Corey Davis reporting for us. The faculty Senate says it isn't looking to change any other names on campus. Right now, it appears that Tillman will keep its name.
6: Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, June 26, 2015. So I have been told. This is our first study session on Stefan Kantrowitz, uh, his nonfiction publication, Ben Tillman and the reconstruction of white supremacy. Now, the author is a white person, but I think we can still uh, learn quite a bit, uh, particularly with all the focus, uh, the shooting down in South Carolina and uh, what I regard uh, as a deliberate racist effort to redirect our focus and attention to the Confederate flag. I just, I thought it would be excellent uh, for all of us to get uh, a better historical context uh, for the state of South Carolina. Uh, And one of the figures who also has a prominent marker throughout South Carolina, not just at the state house uh, in Columbia, but all over the state. And no one's talking about removing any of his statues or taking uh, any of his uh markers down, in fact, you heard audio that was from February of this year, months before the shooting where students had tried to uh, rename Tillman Hall uh, on the campus of Clemson, and they failed uh and that was pretty consistent uh, again, they have uh, markers to Benjamin Tillman uh, at Winthrop University. They have markers at the state house, and all of those efforts have failed thus far. This book will give us a phenomenal representation of who Ben Tillman is. Why this white man is being revered and his relationship to the actions of Emmanuel AME shooter Dylan Storm Roof. Uh, with that, we will get started. Context of White Supremacy, Benjamin Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy. Ben Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy by Stephen Kantrowitz. Introduction. Ben Tillman, agrarian rebel. This is the message I bring to my people. Senator Benjamin Ryan Tillman warned the South Carolina State Democratic Convention in 1918. The world is passing through the greatest crisis in history. In that final year of his life some of the particulars of the crisis were new, but most, especially the ever-looming race problem, were not. Tillman's people had seemed to stand always on the brink of racial, economic, and political catastrophe, and if the crisis was constant, so was the white citizenry he intended to awaken. More than a generation after the overthrow of Reconstruction, in an industrialized nation poised on the threshold of woman suffrage, Tillman's people still consisted of the white farming men he had idealized and derided, represented, and misrepresented throughout his adult life. Ben Tillman defined his world against the revolutions of emancipation and reconstruction that had overtaken it in his youth. White men were supposed to exercise productive independent mastery over individual households and southern society as a whole. But that mastery seemed to face daunting obstacles at every turn. Black laborers aspired to autonomy. Northern corporate interests, the money power, strangled the southern economy. Republicans plotted to reestablish political dominance over the region. Abetted By a handful of traitorous white southern men, these forces were slowly forcing the region's productive white men, the farmers, Tillman called them, into hopeless servitude or perhaps even bloody revolution. Only by mobilizing beneath the banner of white supremacy could these men defeat their foes and create a peaceful and prosperous social order. The roots of the crisis facing white patriarchy lay far in the past. Long before Tillman's birth in 1847, the region's leaders had warned of a coming struggle against an abolitionist-inspired slave insurrection. Tillman's brothers had stood among the Confederate soldiers who fought unsuccessfully to hold those threats at bay. In the mid-1870s, he himself had taken bloody part in the campaign of terror and fraud that brought down South Carolina's reconstruction government. But the counter-revolution that the former slaveholders dubbed redemption did not resolve the region's political and economic crisis. Tillman continued fighting, first as an insurgent within the state Democratic Party, then as its leader, and finally before a national audience. Throughout his career as planter, terrorist, reformer, governor, senator, and nationally known orator, Tillman struggled to mobilize the farmers as a constituency and an idea. His vision and his voice shaped the understanding of millions and helped create a violent, repressive world of the Jim Crow South. Tillman sought to transform the slogan white supremacy into a description of a social reality Reconstructing a white male authority in every sphere from the individual household to national politics. The project was crucial for in Tillman's world. Racial equality was an oxymoron. One race or another would dominate. And if white men failed to rally together, their households would be invaded or subjugated by hostile forces. Whether white men faced the federal government, African-Americans or furnishing merchants, Tillman wanted them to do so as masters, not slaves. He therefore imagined a world in which the fearsome alliance of racial, financial, and federal corruption had been permanently vanquished. His idealized organic society was an agricultural arcadia in which land-owning farmers were the salt of the earth and called no man master. White supremacy more than a slogan and less than a fact was a social argument and a political program. It constituted of ideas and practices, promises and threats, oratory and murder. The golden age Tillman imagined had no need for such a slogan, for until Reconstruction, the idea of white supremacy had been implicit in the legal, social and economic system of slavery and had been enforced and reinforced at every level of society from the plantation to the United States Supreme Court. But the emancipation, equal protection, and manhood suffrage had destroyed this congruence between the law and the white male monopoly on authority. As a result, white supremacy was anything but a given in the post bellum South. The economic hardships and transformations of the post-war era drove wedges in the historic fissures among white men and created new ones as well. As old arrangements ceased to function, new ones became more and more imaginable. Interracial coalition politics, for example, no longer constituted the capital crime of fomenting insurrection Whatever basis slavery had created for white unity had been permanently undermined, and thus in the post-bellum era, white male solidarity and collective authority would have to be built on a new foundation. As one of the leading proponents of white supremacy, therefore, Tillman had to be many things at once, an ideologue, an organizer, and a terrorist. White supremacy was hard work. It was one thing to posit white male unity and another thing entirely to create and enforce it. white mind existed in the post bellum South, no white Volksgeist and therefore the reconstruction of white supremacy would require new forms of mastery. Almost from the moment of their military defeat in 1865, Ben Tillman and his colleagues began a war against reconstruction. They entered the struggle well-armed, for as slaveholders and Confederate officers, they had extensive experience mobilizing white men. In the 20th century, it has become commonplace to explain the violent campaigns they waged against reconstruction and later insurgent political movements as the product of white Southerners' racism. But historic prejudices however powerful and pervasive, do not by themselves do the work of political organization. Black political and economic striving undoubtedly troubled many white men, but paramilitary groups such as the Ku Klux Klan and Tillman's red shirts did not simply rise up. Rather, men of the leadership class forged political arguments and organization that put white men's expectations of mastery to work. In 1876 and 1877, amid a national political crisis, they succeeded in overthrowing the elected Republican government of South Carolina. In this and subsequent campaigns, Tillman and his colleagues mobilized not only white men, but also ideas about white manhood. Any real analysis of white supremacy cannot limit itself to studying mechanisms of physical violence and economic coercion institutional effects and the efforts of critics and opponents. It must also pay close attention to words and ideas. This does not mean simply exploring rhetorical figures or pursuing an intellectual history detached from other realms of human experience. It means confronting the evanescent and the material, the mental and the elemental all at once, a formidable challenge. A single life standing at the confluence of these conflicts can reveal much about their natures and dynamics. Some caution is required. As Barbara Fields has noted, taking the former slaveholders seriously, naturally, does not mean taking them literally. Tillman's private thoughts and beliefs remain unknowable, but his words and deeds together allow us to reconstruct the political world of action and argument in which he operated. In this book, I try to take Tillman's words as seriously as his deeds, not because they had precisely the same kinds of effects, but because both words and deeds were planned, shaped, and directed. They were both part of the project of white supremacy. The reconstruction of white supremacy succeeded in part because it built on words and ideas with deep histories. White Southerners did not respond to post-bellum challenges in the light of what might be as much as in the light of what had been. They knew that from slave conspiracies to reconstruction, militias, and labor struggles, black men and women had challenged the barriers to their aspirations. Many whites continued to perceive black aspirations as inherently threatening rather than interpreting white responses to black striving as anxieties matters of psychology. We must understand that people committed to racial hierarchy had always had a great deal to be anxious about and that whatever insecurities had characterized slaveholders rule would only be magnified in the postbellum era but most white Southerners were linked by more than anxiety. They also shared common, if implicit, understandings of the relationship between race, gender, economic position, and social hierarchies, understandings that made white manhood the center around which all else revolved. Tillman made particularly skillful use of the language of the farmers, who were implicitly white and male. The work required by farmers was sometimes performed by Negroes, but often by laborers or simply hands. Helpmeets were farm wives. Social relations and language did not function with perfect harmony as indicated by the existence of black proprietors, female-headed households, and dissolute or incompetent white farming men. The meaning of manhood and womanhood were open to question and contest, as were the meanings of black and white. But the conflict over such meanings took place within the constraints of people's histories, situations and imaginations, limiting and even undermining radical challenges. Human beings rarely understand all the ways their history has shaped them and postbellum Southerners were no exception. Tillman's radical opponents struggled to reconfigure the meaning of race in ways that would bolster their economic and political programs. They failed in part because they hewed to a notion of producerism that was rooted in a social experience long reserved for white men only and in part because whenever they attempted to give political life to a different conception of productive labor, men like Tillman took up arms against them. After the failure of biracial agrarianism, other challenges to Tillman's reconstruction of white supremacy, such as black leaders defending manhood, suffrage, and white women demanding suffrage, often framed their arguments even less expansively, seeking safety in a shared manhood or a shared whiteness. Exploring the history of white manhood thus helps us offer a richer explanation of white supremacy and its challengers than do conventional notions that race trumped class. The reconstruction of white supremacy required vanquishing white foes as well as black ones. Some of Tillman's most fearsome enemies were not Northerners or black Republicans, but other white Southern men. In fact, Tillman spent much of his time and energy attacking those who fell outside the boundaries of defiant agricultural white Southern manhood, including white men who performed political coalitions with blacks or Republicans. Tillman and his allies understood race to be a biological fact, but they also understood it as something far more subjective. For political purposes, race could be determined by partisan allegiance and behavior as much by phenotype. The most important negative reference for a white manhood was a vision of black manhood that bore slavery's discursive double load of indolent incapacity An insurrectionary intent. But white men who contemplated a biracial political order were denounced as scheming incendiaries, white Negroes who deserved whatever punishment they got. White men could also betray white supremacy by asserting unwarranted authority over other white men, in effect, treating these white men not as equals, but as slaves. Tillman, like many of his friends and foes, valued only labor that created tangible goods. According to this theory, sometimes called producerism, merchants and middlemen were dependent for their livelihoods on the efforts of farmers and laborers. But in the post-Reconstruction decades, these unproductive white men rose to positions of great economic and political power. Mill owners who controlled the work lives of a growing class of white mill workers presented an even more extreme vision of white men dominating one another. But Tillman reserved his fiercest attacks for the Redeemer Democrats he had helped put in power in the the 1870s. He claimed that these do-nothing Bourbons and aristocrats stood by while the mass of white men slid toward dependence. Effect urban dandies, and dudes, they did not understand the need for collective action and treated agricultural white men with derision and disdain. These aristocrats' incompetence and impotence did not make them figuratively female, for in Tillman's producerist vision, white farm women were far superior to many white men. There were not visions of pedestalized purity, but productive workers who could help restore the state's white agricultural households. Indeed, Tillman attacked the aristocrats for their blindness to women's legitimate roles. But although farmers' wives required respect, they were not actually or even potentially equal to white farming men. They did not belong in politics which Tillman understood in almost military terms. White women had to be protected from threats to their physical safety, and from the 1890s onward, the region's transformations altered the nature of interracial contact. Tillman would become one of the nation's most notorious advocates of lynching black men who were suspected of raping white women. Tillman's stinging, provocative attacks on merchants, Middlemen and Redeemer leadership drew the attention of the state's white Democratic voters and earned him powerful enemies. Powerful, but not perceptive. When the state leaders responded to his attacks, they focused on Tillman's rough, rude style, denouncing him as a demagogue who was attempting to lead a white mob. Describing Tillman's putative constituency in insulting and belittling terms, these leaders seemed to be precisely the callous aristocrats Tillman had charged them with being. To those who understood Tillman as he wished to be understood, the nickname Pitchfork Ben fit him perfectly. The image of a one-eyed farmer poking at his foes before a roaring crowd makes masks the origins, intentions, and achievements Of Tillman's life and career in just the way that Tillman himself desired his enemies mistook his style for substance we must not repeat that error Tillman was no radical he led no mass movement although he claimed to represent reform he had in the past championed policies hostile to poor men's interests. Even after his agitation began in the mid-1880s, he offered no substantial programs to address the needs of debt-ridden farmers and ardently opposed programs that might have helped them. In part, this was because he normally refused to admit that federal power might have a legitimate role, tainted as it was by the memory of the Civil War's coercion and invasion and Reconstruction's radical and Negro misrule. Tillman claimed to champion the rights and needs of the farmers, but the aspects of his program that one could consider constructive, especially his role in founding institutions of higher education for white men and women, remain tightly bound by his fears of racial equality and federal power. Even legislation aimed specifically at hampering black aspirations revealed the limits of his devotion to white men's collective rights. His efforts to bring state disenfranchisement by imposing educational or property qualifications for voting caused many white men to fear that they, like white dissidents and aristocrats, might find themselves read out of the circle of real white men. In fact, his successful disenfranchisement campaign Depressed white turnout for more than a generation. Tillman's career helps explain how white men came to be their own worst enemies, or at least to elect them. Tillman did not in any literal way represent the men he claimed to champion. This is not the story of the white southern yeomanry feeling its way from the slave south to the 20th century, for Tillman was not of that class. It is even more emphatically not the story of the poorest Southern whites, landless people who rarely voted and played only a symbolic part in the campaigns of Tillman and his opponents. Instead of being the story of these white Southerners, in fact, it is the story of political and cultural elites manipulating images and ideas about such people. Tillman's political strength did not lie in his ability to preserve most white men's embattled household independence and precarious political authority. He offered them precious little of either. Instead, it lay in his ability to identify and attack the figures who seemed to pose the greatest threat to such men's independence. In the absence of sustained challenges from people offering more substantive remedies, an absence due in large measure to the violent assaults such people faced from Tillman and his allies. Tillman's slashing attacks at least acknowledged the anger, anxiety, and alienation that many white men felt. Some of Tillman's achievements were much more than symbolic. He did help set profound limits on black attainment in post-Reconstruction South, presenting the black freedom movement with challenges that it would take more than a generation to overcome. This was no small accomplishment and Tillman bragged of it constantly. He never hesitated to declare that he and his fellow redshirts had gained power through force and fraud in 1876 and he insisted that white men would always violently resist attacks on their power. He called for the nation to follow South Carolina's example and strip black men of the right to vote. But Tillman's victory did not represent the triumph of racial radicalism over moderate or conservative alternative. Any close inspection of the lives and careers of Tillman's white Democratic opponents will reveal that they set more or less the same limits on black political aspiration as Tillman set. Like Tillman, they had studied political power in slave holdings school, and if they sometimes made different choices than those made by Tillman, it was a matter of tactics, not a sign that they were less committed than Tillman to mastery by any means. They all agreed on the necessity of white-dominated one-party South, and for the most part, they achieved that goal. By the last decade of Tillman's life, national political programs had to submit to the procrustean bed of white supremacist strictures if they were to have any hope of passage the history of a powerful white supremacist political leader draws much of its inspiration from recent scholarship in the history of race and gender, but it also builds on other legacies. 60 years ago, C. Van Woodard published Tom Watson, agrarian rebel, the story of a white farmer who fought for a more democratic egalitarian South failed and devolved into a hateful demagogue. Unlike Tom Watson, apostle of populism, Tillman represented a democratic party that steadfastly opposed radical economic and social transformation. Despite Tillman's reputation as an insurgent, he was fundamentally a conservative. Like Woodard's story, this one is a tragedy, not because Tillman failed to fulfill his his potential, but because he succeeded. In keeping with the irony that Woodward made so central to the practice of history in this field, this book suggests that Tillman's empty, symbolic form of rebellion triumphed where Watson's radical rebellion failed. It explores the ways Tillman achieved that victory by building on the experiences and expectations of white men as farmers, soldiers, and former political equals. It shows how Tillman used the legacies of the past, including racial slavery and white men's assumed monopoly over political and military power to make radical challenges unbearably costly for their proponents. It also shows how Tillman shaped the national understanding of the meaning of racial violence. Although Tillman frequently boasted that the redshirt campaign of force and fraud had been a concerted effort He argued that the roots of racial conflict lay not in politics or economics, but in racial instinct. When two races lived side by side, one or the other would have to rule. And by the 20th century, Tillman could point to electoral violence, labor struggles, and widespread lynching as evidence that white men had prevailed. White men were the most civilized race on the planet, responsible for the world's greatest cultural attainments. Their superiority extended to physical courage and strength, and when the purity or superiority of the white race was threatened, white men became capable of the most savage violence. It was the claim of racial instinct, not the admission of counter-revolutionary conspiracy that caught the national imagination and gave Pitchfork Ben the reputation that has followed him throughout the 20th century. Tillman seemed to represent the very white savage that he described in his speeches. Volatile, uncouth, missing an eye, and clad in unfashionable clothes, Tillman was easily seen as the embodiment of the Southern poor white, a man with hatred for the negro flowing in his veins. To his credit to his critics, Tillman represented an ignorant, intolerant white South that had seized the reins of power from a more cautious elite that whatever its faults had sought peace through compromise and accommodation. This consensus was a sign of Tillman's victory, not a description of it. The persistent violence with which Tillman and other white Democrats met their challengers obscured the meaning of their victories. As a result, Just as contemporary observers accepted Tillman's self-identification as a champion of the farmers, generations of Americans came to see white supremacist violence not as a tactic but as a fact of social life, almost a force of nature. As the 20th century opened, many people began to believe that Tillman was right and that the politics of white men, Southern and perhaps others as well, followed from racial instinct and a cultural inheritance so deeply ingrained that it might as well be biologically rooted. If that were true, then Reconstruction had indeed been a mistake, and biracial politics were foredoomed. If that were true, the nation might have to accept disenfranchisement, segregation, and even lynching as the price of sectional reconciliation then perhaps the United States was or even is condemned to remain two nations separate and unequal and would never be a truly democratic republic, if that were true. One. Mastery and its discontents. Most of the 40,000 people in South Carolina's Edgefield district had been born into slavery. More than half of the rest, white women and a handful of free black people, could never expect to be citizens. But on the 11th day of August 1847, Benjamin Ryan Tillman entered his world near its apex. He would never be subject to a master's surveillance and coercion, nor after childhood would he face legal subordination to a male relation like his father, for whom he had been named. He would be free and independent and rich, for the elder Tillman owned four dozen slaves and 2,500 acres of land, more than most of his neighbors. Ben Tillman would inherit not only the formal citizenship that came with white male adulthood, but also the social power that came with wealth. But wealth Based on slavery, came at a price, for neither law nor custom could transform people into things. As workers, kinfolks, believers, and rebels, African Americans pitted their wills against their masters, defying their legal status as property and making the practice of slaveholding a constant struggle. While the slaveholders, especially planters, those owning 20 or more slaves sought to give their regime a human face, claiming that paternalist concern bound owner and owned into a virtual family, each household a peaceable kingdom in which subject and sovereign alike had important roles to play. But any flowers of mutuality that did develop had shallow roots, for they rested on the rock of coercive force. Masters lived in fear of a servile revolution that would destroy their entire society, a fear periodically reinforced by news of insurrection plots and murderous assaults. Slaves did more than fear. They suffered physical and emotional brutalities for which there could be no legal redress. Although barns burned with some frequency and white families seemed vulnerable to food-borne ailments that household slaves managed to avoid. These reciprocal terrors, not paternalist myths of reciprocal duties, lay at the heart of antebellum southern life. Very few masters and even fewer slaves ever forgot that the essence of slavery was physical domination or that a bullwhip carried in a velvet bag was a bullwhip just the same south carolina's planter elite recognized that control of the enslaved majority demanded solidarity among the group that held a collective monopoly on citizenship the state's white mailed household heads these men ranged from the proprietors of modest family farms to wealthy planters heavily invested in slaves, cotton, and the international export market, all sharing common expectations. In theory, no one, outsider or household member, could challenge a master's patriarchal authority over his dependence, male or female, slave or free. The mastery of household and dependents, whether or not these included slaves, in turn entitled a man to participate in the shared arenas of political and civic life. Household and collective sovereignty provided the ideal against which most white men measured their world. Wherever they turned, planters confronted social realities that contradicted this theory of independent mastery. Inequalities between masters and slaves and between wealthy and less wealthy whites created profound social tensions. Individuals and sometimes groups resisted slaveholders' authority. Patriarchs who violated community norms in the treatment of their dependents might be disciplined by neighbors and concerned with preserving the overall legitimacy of patriarchal authority and legislatures might formally limit masters' power over their slaves. Participation in the international economy made cotton producers vulnerable to forces well beyond their control. By the 1840s, many planters had come to believe that these internal stresses were being exacerbated and exploited by an abolitionist conspiracy to check and, if possible, to exterminate the institution of slavery. Abolitionists, they claimed, sought to close new territories to slavery, distribute insurrectionary materials and ideas throughout the South, and incite the enslaved black workforce to bloody revolution. At the moment of Ben Tillman's birth, the men of his class had already begun mobilizing a white male army against threats to slavery. This mobilization was in some respects as delicate a task as slave discipline. The defense of slavery had to be framed as a defense of a society based on white patriarchal privilege rather than a defense of a particular property interest. In the short term, this mobilization succeeded. In slave patrols, anti-abolitionist vigilant societies, volunteer militia companies, and finally the Confederate Army, white men stood together to defend their households' property and communities against threats from within and without. Before long, Tillman would be expected to join them, to share in the society's wealth and government, to share in the solidarity and struggles of master class life. But during the years of his infancy and childhood, his life depended on his class's ability to maintain dominance over millions of slaves and solidarity with millions of non-slave-holding white men. These struggles defined Tillman's early experience. Although he never served in the Confederate Army, he became a veteran of the longer, more ambiguous war to make the world safe for mastery. The Reciprocal Terrors of Slavery Slaveholders claimed to have paternal feelings for and relations with their slaves, but they also understood that it was crucial that they be feared. In May 1849, the Edgefield Advertiser issued an unusually blunt warning to local slaveholders. Alarmed by the recent murder of county resident Michael Long by one of his slaves, newspaper editor insisted that rigid discipline was the only wise policy and real justice. Those who indulged their slaves yielding to the tender and humane emotions of their hearts, violated the most basic precept of mastery. Black slaves, a race of beings naturally ungrateful and treacherous, could only be governed by motives of fear. The most grievous offense against good discipline, the editor declared, was the practice of allowing slaves to move about freely at night, for this enabled them to trade in stolen property with wicked white men. Slaves who fell into this practice and under these influences learned to despise their master's authority. Before long, for the smallest offense, these corrupted servants would inhumanly murder him who was their friend and protector. In short, failure to maintain uniform, vigilant, and rigid control over their slaves could cost slaveholders their lives. Alex de Tocqueville had noted in Democracy in America, although the fear of slave insurrection was a nightmare constantly haunting the American imagination, white Southerners generally greeted the topic with frightening silence. But the advertiser's warning, remarkable only for its lack of euphemism, reflect, reflected no merely local, temporary, or peculiar sentiments. Slaves had risen in revolt throughout South Carolina's colonial history. During the War of Independence, many had fought with the British against their revolutionary masters. Countless plots and panics over the next decades reached a climax in 1822 when Denmark Vesey's conspiracy terrified White Charleston. Ben Tillman's father had already reached adulthood when Charleston's authorities hung dozens of slaves implicated in Vesey's abortive rebellion. Events elsewhere, notably Nat Turner's bloody march through Virginia in 1831, made plain the costs of insufficient vigilance. The advertiser's warning only reminded slaveholders of familiar but unpleasant facts. The people they owned might kill them in pursuit of vengeance or freedom. As the editor pointed out, Michael Long's murder, for which two slaves were finally hung and a dozen others whipped, was only one of several similar instances in our district within the last two years. Deterrence, not murder, was the slaveholder's goal, and domination relied on the credibility of each planter's perceived capacity for violence. The hanging of a slave murdering his or her master represented a failure. For the master, certainly, but for the slave-holding society as well. Slaveholders meted out brutal lashings in part to quash real or perceived threats, but also to make gruesome examples of the disobedient. Masters' responses to individual acts of disobedience served as a crucial firebreak or without credible authority on each plantation, the regime would dissolve into economic chaos and perhaps into violence. For most historian has pointed out, these men knew that resorting to violence in every instance would mean living in a state of war. The purpose of the late antebellum era's long truce bubbled the knowledge that punishment and retaliation might be only a heartbeat away. The wealthy white men of the Beach Island Farmers Club, an agricultural society including many edgefield planters, understood this dynamic. Four days before Ben Tillman's birth, they met to discuss discipline. When slaves become impatient, unwilling, and rebellious, one declared, masters could not afford to hesitate or negotiate. It is necessary to whip if your rules are disobeyed, declared another. Enforce your authority. Whip if it is necessary to whip, but do not threaten. Instead of perpetual scolding and threatening, agreed a third, use the rod. The preservation of a labor system and a way of life demanded vigilance. It depends entirely on the management of our slaves, one planner warned whether this institution shall continue to exist. Such catastrophes were more likely to affect individual masters than to affect their society as a whole, for, for slaves as well as masters knew that insurrection plots ended in failure and death, split up into relatively small groups on separate plantations living under the watchful eyes of masters, patrollers, and potentially indiscreet Fellow Bonds people, black southerners focused on carving out less dangerous spaces of cultural and social autonomy than those envisioned by Bessie. But slaves never ceased testing the limits of master's control. Their resistance frequently took place silently, anonymously, and indirectly. They worked more slowly than they could. They lay out in the woods to avoid punishment. They stole from master stores, and they traded with free people. Troubled by these signs of individual and collective will, slaveholders sought explanations. Perhaps, they argued, such behavior was the result of racial incapacity. If black people naturally malingered and stole, slaveholders reasoned, then no individual master could be blamed if his slaves were less than perfectly reliable. In private correspondence, local agricultural society debates and regional journals such as DeBose Review, they made an art and sometimes a science of parsing the moral and intellectual shortcomings of the Negro. In addition to arguing that status and behavior followed race, they suggested that inequality was a natural and beneficent aspect of human society. Savannah River planter James Henry Hammond, convener of the Beach Island Planters and later governor and U.S. Senator, argued in widely published anti abolitionist letters and speeches that blacks formed a natural mudsill class, freeing white people from society's hardest and dirtiest work. In the North, heartless employers made wage slaves of white men and mobs roamed the cities. Racial slavery, by contrast, had made the South a uniquely fortunate and harmonious society. Hammond's argument for slavery as a just and organic social order appealed to his fellow planters. Masters hoped that if they articulated the rules clearly enough and enforced them reliably, slaves would accept the legitimacy of their master's authority. As one planner acknowledged, so long as the slave thinks he is unjustly held in bondage, just so long will he be impatient, unwilling, and rebellious. You must convince them you are not a tyrant, but act on the principle of justice. Another explained, the plantation, in other words, must become a just and well-ordered world of familial devotion. Nothing captured this ideal more precisely than the slave owner's language of paternalism. Slaves, essentially childlike and capable of higher reasoning and only haltingly responsive to moral tutelage, required the combination of kindness and discipline that only a father could provide. Since no slave parent's authority had any legal standing, Slaves, children literally belong to someone else. Paternal responsibility fell to the slaveholder. Like other children, slaves might occasionally require physical correction. A slaveholder representing himself in this way could refer, without apparent irony, to his family, white and black. He might frame a slave's acts of malingering, theft, or insolence, as that of a wayward child, not that of a potential revolutionary. But this paternalism characterized Planter's fantasies far better than it did their society, for forbearance and benevolence could exist only in the space created by terror. At the core of paternalism, in other words, lay brutal coercion. Slaves might be part of a figurative Family, but in fact, masters frequently threatened slaves and sail away from their actual families as a way of coercing obedience with a practice that exposed the hollowness of paternalist pretensions. Slaves might be described as erring children in need of coercion, but few children of the master class were subjected to the kinds of beatings administered to human property on southern plantations, as individual master and slave might even develop bonds of real affection and shared experience, but a master's death, illness, debt, or whim could in an instant upset what had appeared to be and even felt like a system of reciprocal obligations. A master who forbore, who acted with restraint, in every extremity, could hardly expect to turn a profit or even to survive. He needed to be able, in the space of a heartbeat, to exchange the paternalist's face for one of savage, violent determination. Planners who surrendered wholly to tender and humane feelings, the Edgefield advertiser scoffed, sacrificed the patriarchal authority they most needed, and this left them dangerously vulnerable to the black and white men who would otherwise remain their subordinates. Not long after Ben Tillman's second birthday, a local white man was killed while trying to subdue a shotgun-wielding slave. The killer, the advertiser claimed, frankly admits that his former master was a kind and indulgent man. Whatever the slave had actually said, however... His master had actually behaved it was impossible to miss the intended point. Unchecked leniency had wrought deadly mischief. For this racial system of labor control to function, slaves had to understand that they had a simple choice, obedience or retribution. The slave who approached a master deferentially to seek a favor might or might not gain it. The slave who seriously overstepped the bounds of appropriate submission would face no such uncertainty. On an isolated plantation on a hot July afternoon, a master facing a recalcitrant or rebellious slave had only one aim, to make an example of that person by bringing him or her brutally to heel. The slaveholders never forgot for more than passing moments that their dominance. Legitimate or not, above all required fear. King Cotton and His Subjects Participation in the international cotton economy made the tailmans rich, but it also enmeshed them in financial networks that, like slavery, they could not fully control. Cotton might have been king, as Hammond insisted on the floor of the U.S. Senate, but not in precisely the way that he meant. Having staked their livelihoods on cotton, planters became less the masters of the staple crop and its subjects. No theory or exhortation could alter the large cotton producers' profound dependence. There was no other word for it on the outside capital to produce and market their crop. Fluctuations in the international market created uncertainty even among the very wealthy. At Ben Tillman's birth, South Carolina was in the throes of a long and painful economic depression. The cotton boom of the early 19th century had tied the state and its cotton-producing households to the Atlantic economy. When the price of cotton sank to a near-catastrophic low in the late 1830s, it pulled the whole households down with it. The depression ruined many fortunes and might easily have brought down the Tillmans. The elder Benjamin Tillman died young in 1849, and with cotton prices low and the plantation's longtime manager suddenly absent, the household could easily have fallen from its lofty economic position. But cotton prices rebounded in the 1850s and families who had retained the land and slaves to capitalize on the recovery could prosper. Sophia Tillman and her older children not only had kept the productive capital the patriarch had left them, but had improved on it. During the booming 1850s, the household's wealth in land and slaves nearly doubled. When Tillman was 10, the family's investment in slavery grew to include 30 Africans smuggled to America on the Wanderer. Tillman later remembered these recent victims of the Middle Passage as the most miserable lot of human beings, the nearest to the missing link with monkeys. But the Long Depression caused some planters to question their way of life, particularly their dependence on cotton. Planter intellectuals such as Edmund Ruff and James Henry Hammond disapproved of Southerners' single-minded devotion to cotton production at the expense of economic self-sufficiency. Cotton, they feared, not only wore out land, but also constrained planter independence. They sought control over their local market centers, employing a proprietary language reflecting slaveholders' expectation of mastery. We are justly entitled to supply our own market towns, Hammond declared in 1856, they are ours, ours, they belong to us, and we should allow none to compete with us, especially northern manufacturers. He and other reformers called for diversification, self-sufficiency in grain and meat production, and a host of legal and agricultural reforms that they hoped would improve the productivity and profitability of staple production. They also set in motion the process of industrialization hoping that factors like edgefield Grantville would both reduce their reliance on northern manufactured goods and absorb the surplus labor force both free and slave. The end of the Depression fatally undermined these efforts to diversify the regional economy as long as slaves constituted planners' primary investment and cotton prices remained high, each planter would seek to gain the maximum possible return, and industrialization, diversification, and soil conversation would attract more pious words than devout deeds. In the short term, slave-produced cotton was simply more profitable than diversification, and with supplies available from producers in other regions, few chose to dedicate land and labor to pursuits other than cotton production. Industry remained an economic sideline and the Augusta hinterland did not produce enough corn or pork to meet its population's needs. The planter class as a whole entered the 1850s as single-mindedly devoted to cotton production and as dependent on it as it had ever been. White patriarchal solidarity and its limits. Politics fell somewhat short of the Jacksonian ideal of rough parity among adult white men. In most slave states, politics were substantially shaped by rivalries between planter dominated black belts and yeoman dominated white belts. After the spread of cotton into upcountry by the 1820s, however, South Carolina's substantial population of small slaveholders and non-slaveholding white men was overmatched almost everywhere, even in the upcountry. The spread of cotton culture across the state's backcountry created majority or near-majority black populations in nearly every county. Because South Carolina lacked a coherent white belt, elsewhere a counterweight to planter power, the state's political institutions did not democratize as fully as those of other southern states. Despite a significant expansion of democratic rights among white men during the first decade of the century, the state retained property qualifications for some offices, and the legislature selected or appointed many state and local officers, as well as the state's federal electors. Although widely distributed slaveholding retarded formal democracy, it encouraged an unusual degree of social consensus among white men. Slaveholding was more widely distributed in South Carolina than almost anywhere else in the South. Historian James Oakes estimates that a white man in the antebellum South had about a 50% chance of owning a slave sometime during his life and by 1850, the average white South Carolina man's odds must have been even better. At mid-century, nearly 50% of Edgefield's Three household heads owned at least one slave, suggesting that in South Carolina, slaveholding was becoming a normal or perhaps even normative part of adult white manhood. At the same time, planners like Elder Benjamin Tillman controlled most of the society's wealth. Although those owning 20 or more slaves made up only the richest 20% of Edgefield slaveholders, they owned 60% of all the slaves in the district. At any given moment, a majority of white households' heads owned no slaves at all, and the number of slaveholding households in Edgefield fell by nearly one hundred between eighteen fifty and eighteen sixty. Most slaveholders owned no more than five slaves and relied heavily on the labor of white family members. But in eighteen fifty, more than half of Edgefield's twenty-two thousand slaves belonged to just 360 planter households, and the wealthiest 10% of slaveholders, including the Tillmans, controlled more than half the total wealth. Wealthy white men sought to limit and diffuse the potential conflict between slaveholding and non-slaveholding men by sharing some of the tangible benefits of slavery. Poor white men might be able to borrow or rent a wealthier white man's slave for a crucial task or period, and large landowners might allow their less fortunate neighbors to use their lands for hunting, fishing, or foraging. But what a wealthy landowner considered a favor, his resentful client might assert as a right. In late 1847, schoolmaster, minister, and pro-slavery ideologue Iveson Brooks received word from an overseer in Georgia that a bad neighbor, William Lumpkins, had grown accustomed to farming on some of Brooks' unused acres. Lumpkins cursed and abused the overseer for ejecting him, then twice burned Brooks' fence, striking at the literal and legal boundaries of Brooks' household. In dealing with white men such as Lumpkins, the least fortunate of the formerly enfranchised, the planters walked a tightrope between sacrificing too much of their own autonomy and provoking a rejection of the regime as illegitimate. These inequalities among white men did not seriously undermine white patriarchal solidarity for white men's citizenship did not depend on slave ownership but on control of a household more widely distributed form of authority. The right to direct labor inside the household conveyed the right to participate in political and economic life beyond its borders. And under most circumstances, only adult white men had those rights. Children could not be independent social actors, and most white men agreed that black people's natural incapacities, like the lesser but still serious ones of white women, relegated them to dependent social roles. So society's laws restricting political, and economic citizenship almost entirely to white men reflected and reinforced these axioms of white patriarchal republicanism. The inequalities of slavery and patriarchy likewise reinforced one another. Just as slaveholders likened their authority to that of a father over his children, pro-slavery ministers and politicians might carefully compare a master's authority over his slaves to a husband's authority over his wife. All three were legitimate forms of the mastery that made a white man independent. The point was not to suggest that poor white men's wives were effectively their slaves. Indeed, it was bad form to discuss the hard physical labor performed by white women in poor and even middling white households. Rather, White men's legal and customary power over white women within a family categorized the great majority of households rich and poor. Although a white man's wife and children had rights beyond those of any free or enslaved black person, white husbands and fathers had final legal and social authority in most matters. They could determine when and how their children were educated and what work wives and children did. The patriarch even had the right to deed sons and daughters to a third party away from their mother. Inequality was the rule, not the exception in social relations, and slavery was not a peculiar institution at all, but a more absolute form of the same right and proper power God had granted white men over their free wives and children. A white patriarch's power operated even from beyond the grave. As a wife, Sophia Tillman could not vote or hold office nor could she engage in economic activity except as her husband's agent. When she became a widow in 1849, she continued to face legal constraints to her autonomy. The land and slaves she inherited at her husband's death were not hers to dispose of as she saw fit. In order to sell some of the land, she had to petition the county court of equity. She had to do the same to gain legal guardianship of her own children. Formerly entitled to make contracts and hold property, the widow nevertheless remained much less than a full citizen of the white man's republic. Other laws sought to reconcile the ideal of white patriarchy with uncomfortable racial and sexual realities. Free black men and women who headed households did so under daunting legal and social constraints sexual relationships across lines of color and status a few of which were sanctioned by marriage had produced many children whose visibly mixed ancestry presented a threat to common sense definitions of whiteness and blackness and to the relationship between race and status the state legislature recognizing that many white persons had non-white antecedents refused to ban interracial marriage even to establish a legal definition of whiteness or blackness. Jurists, including those upper-class white men who felt most intimately implicated in this history, employed a flexible standard in order to avoid confronting the absurdities and contradictions of their notions of race. Lawmakers were even more concerned about the immediate threat posed by manumission. Some slaveholders freed slaves who were also their children, and others rewarded those who performed exemplary service, such as betraying insurrection conspiracies, by granting them freedom. Slaves, especially self-hiring skilled workers, could sometimes negotiate to buy their freedom. Statewide, free blacks numbered nearly 10,000 in 1860, including a few who were wealthy, but many more who were only somewhat better off than slaves. But all means of achieving freedom had been limited by the 1820 state legislature, which made manumission illegal except by legislated enactment. A truly paternalist elite might have felt compelled to grant the petition of Edgefield slaveholder David Adams, who sought to free the slave who had guarded the dead body of his son on a Mexican battlefield. But lawmakers rejected Adams' petition as they did most others. The legislature's reasoning was simple: once the moment of paternalist passion had passed, the community would have to deal with one more free black man. In this case, one who had demonstrated his courage under fire. Context of white supremacy. Uh, just finished the first audio segment. Uh, we are picking up for people who are following along in the book. For me. Is uh, almost the end of page 20. We are still in chapter 1, uh, but almost the end of page 20. Uh, we'll be picking up at uh, the sentence. It reads, uh, Sever the ties that bound such people to white patriarchal households, is the sentence where we're picking up at, but it's the bottom of page 20. Anywho, context of white supremacy. First study session on Stephen Cantrowitz. Uh, Ben Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy Uh, I can only say uh, quickly, number one uh, this is another biography we've done quite a few Um, this is digging, obviously into the history of South Carolina going all the way back things that were happening just before the Civil War after the Civil War and on into the early 1900s Uh, I know it is uh, summertime super warm, frolicking Uh, It is not uh, the coolest thing in the world to be sitting around and reading uh, 19th century century South Carolina history, but with all of the attention uh, on things in Charlottesville and just the uh, funeral today services for uh, Reverend Pinckney, uh, I thought it would be an outstanding opportunity to get a much better understanding of this area of the world uh, and even the spiritual ancestors of dylan storm roof Uh, i will say that uh this like many history books they kind of start out and give you some of the context of things that were happening in this period and then uh, as it moves forward it will be more focused on ben tillman what he was doing uh in the state of south carolina and the ramifications even beyond south carolina but i think uh it will be interesting the further we get along, particularly once we get into the career uh, of Ben Tillman. But I hope it is constructive. And again, since folks were supposed to be voting uh, and I chose this just after everything happened in South Carolina, if you do not find it to be of constructive value, definitely find something better to do with your Friday evening. With that, for folks who would like to chime in, the number to dial is 760 Seven six seven six and the code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. That number again seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six the code five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate uh, for folks who would like to use the free flash phone should be linked at Black Talk Radio Network uh, if you need the address it is Tiny T I N dot cc forward slash one race and that is the number one that address again tiny t i n y dot cc forward slash one race and that is the number one uh, when you put in that address Click the link on the left side of the page. Uh, it says Free Flash Phone. Uh, once you click it, it will open a small window on your screen. The top window, it is a drop down menu. Select the number that I just read out, which again is 7605697676. Uh, the next line, it will request the code. That code again is 564943. The final line, it will ask for a name, whatever. If you are comfortable putting in your real name, that's fine. A uh, nickname, that'll work too. You can press random keys. Uh, once you get all that entered, click the green button at the bottom and it will connect you to the program. Looking forward to hearing uh, comments, thoughts uh, from folks, uh, hopefully found some of the information to be of value. Uh, everyone who chimed in with a hand up, your line should be open. Uh, folks to watch the background noise. That would be great as well. Uh, everyone who has a hand up should be with us. Uh, looking forward to hearing thoughts.
1: Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, greetings, Jeff. Greetings to the callers, listeners. Henry Ford here. Uh, I, I'd just like to chime in and say that I think this was a excellent uh, pick. The book it uh, would probably give us more insight into the mechanics or the original, well, the white supremacy origination here in this particular part of the planet. And uh this guy, Benjamin Killman, you know, will uh give us some insight insight into the mind of a of an overt racist and one of the original uh founders and practitioners of you know Uh, White supremacy. So Tillman started out, struggled to mobilize a farmer as a uh, constituency and an idea. His vision, his voice shaped the understanding of millions and helped create the violent, repressive world of Jim Crow South. He was, you know, born into wealth and a wealthy landowner. His family had money through cotton. So they had uh, profited from the repression of enslaved Africans. So he was not only a slave owner, but also characterized as a terrorist for his ideas and his actions. And the vote guys, which Is a German meaning for the spirit of the people or the so called national character of a people. He appealed to that, I guess, among whites. And I think that that particular uh, part uh, gets to the core of the hate and the disdain that whites have for blacks and other non-white people. Uh, Racism is practiced, was practiced in the form of, uh, under the disguise of white southerners, which was just another way of saying that they were directly opposed to any black political or economic uh, advancements or striving by black and so uh they formed a uh, paramilitary group such as kkk and the tillman red shirts which i guess they'll elaborate on later but to seize political power you know and it seems as though pitchfork Ben, which was his nickname one of his uh those uh, were to uh, preserve white supremacy by uh, holding down or stopping the advancement of black people. Now, he it, the book said he'd become one of the nation's most notorious advocates of lynching black men who were suspected of raping white women. Um, see, he's one of those very dangerous races. He said to, to himself that racial equality was an oxymoron. But then some of the words that he used, I think, earlier, I, I think he referred to white Negroes, and to me that's an oxymoron. But, you know, I don't know what he meant when he used that term but they knew that blacks had aspirations and that they were, they considered any advancement by black as inherently threatened and that race trumped class. Like I said before, his ultimate goal was to promote white supremacy, they use and mistreat black politically and economically. Uh, after the the Reconstruction, you know, we know that black people were holding office in those southern states. But, you know, this group and his group of uh, terrorists, thugs, you know, uh, newly freed slaves and slaves that were still in a physical state of enslavement, for some reason or another, they took advantage of African-Americans pitted their wills against their masters and they defied their legal status as property and making the practice of slaveholding a constant struggle. So that's a form of black self that just was not bending over and accepting status quo at the time, although they were under uh, great uh, stress and they practiced fear the, the white supremacists uh, in the other slave owners and other whites that they would use situations where uh, a slave owner would be killed or something happened and they would spin that story into one That would, if you indulge your slaves, yield into the tender and humane emotion uh, of their hearts, then you would violate the most basic precept of mastery. Black slaves, a race of being naturally ungrateful and treacherous, could only be governed by motives of fear. And then I added sex and violence, you throw economics in with that, and you've got the major components that are uh, used to maintain the system of white supremacy. I'll mute my line and let somebody else get the chance. Thanks for taking the call, Jeff.
3: Uh, greetings, everyone. This is guy from North Carolina. Greetings to uh, the host, Gus, and greetings to all the listeners. I think this was a wise choice given the current circumstances for those who don't live in this part of the world, which I do um, to gain an understanding on the psychology of, of these white people. And I pre, and as I was listening, um, I was just hearing similar percentages in terms of, of the number of whites who actually enslaved Af- Africans far outnumbered the number of, of Po white trash they did not own africans um but I mean I'm trying to understand the psychology of you wasn't benefiting from the enslavement of uh, Africans uh at that time, and you know other than like what was mentioned um in the book that you might be able to lease you know an enslaved African to you know do something here or do something there, but for the most part. You was um, you was getting welfare from the rich white. So I was like, I was like, and and also I wanted to say that what I'm heard thus far in this book it's the same way in my County that I've been doing research on just to, you know, again, you know, I guess not only learn the psychology of these whites around here, as they get ready to have these rallies and stuff around their, um, racist monuments, um, monuments to terrorists and whatnot. But the similar statistics that I was hearing from that area of South Carolina, the same right here, uh, the same right here. And, um, One of the things I I, I noticed just for our own, you know, for for Gaston County, which is we're right on the border with South Carolina. And in 1860, there were like 93, uh, excuse me, yeah, 9,300 white residents in in this county classified as white, but only 360 of those actually uh, enslaved any Africans. And and so there were like over a thousand Africans uh, in Gaston County where I lived that that were enslaved, but there were a lot of free blacks like the family that I'm descended from as well. And 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 so I mean it just it's just touching home, man. It's just it's just connecting me to the land that I live on. It's also connecting me to to that history and. I appreciate, you know, you sharing this. And, and so, I mean, just to think about the psychology of, of, of these poor white trash that they just will. And we see it today that they will go fight wars. They will go do this. They will go do that. Like we hear them in politics, you know, arguing for cuts to food stamps and stuff like that when they benefit the most. But they believe that black people benefit the most. And so, therefore, they, they'll cut their own throats and and so you know these people man I, i'm like do they even know how dumb their ancestors was to go off and fight for somebody else's right but then the reason that they do, did it from the research i read from um UNC University of, uh, of North Carolina it talked about that it was like you know that the white support in the, in this county for succession, because all of North Carolina wasn't part of the Confederacy, but this county and Cleveland County where they caught that terrorist, uh, Dylan uh, uh, Storm Roof, uh, they did succeed. But it was saying the research that they did said that, you, you know, you can't explain their support for succession because they were invested in, you know, the institution. Because they didn't own any. But what it was is that they hoped that one day, that they will be able to enslave a African, so they could rape them, exploit them, do whatever, beat them whenever they want to, and whatnot. And so they just thinking that one day, you know, I might be able to own another. Um, I, I hesitate to call them human beings, but to um, own, you know, enslave a uh, African, you know, that I mean, that is that's just sick, man. These people are sick terrorists. Um, it, it's just in their ge- uh, uh, genes, I guess, uh, so to speak. And you know, I'm just man. I'm sickened by these people, man. I hate that I have to see them. I really don't even talk to them, you know. But I have been engaging some of them on social media through through the uh, local paper and, and whatnot. And I mean, these people, man, they're animals, man. They they are just animals, and and they don't care if you present a logical a- argument to them. You know, they might not say nothing back to you, but then they still, you know, uh uh pushing that white supremacy and that ter- that terrorism. So man, I, I, I hate these people, man. I really do. That that's all. But um, thank you for picking this book as it's helping me to see, you know, the psychology in and in, in the history of, of these racist terrorists that surround us. And I'll mute my line. You know, can I be heard?
7: Yes, sir, we can hear you. Well, like does, um, good evening does, good evening Mr. Reed and to all of the callers. Um, just, I have to say, I think this book is a master stroke in the understanding of racism and white supremacy. I, I think I would liken it to the white people's version of the Willie Lynch letter. Um, it's incredible, just the first 20 pages alone. And weirdly enough, earlier today, um, I just actually started working at a job early this week. But every lunch break, I get an hour for lunch to actually listen to archive episodes. Today, I happen to get uh, Dr. Sam Bachman. I suggest anyone who is within earshot of this show listen to that archive because uh, he, it was—he basically said in, in short form everything that I was thinking. He basically spoke of the term of sadistic, psychopathic narcissism and. Throughout the, throughout that show, Gus, you referenced the fact that everything he described is exactly what racism and white supremacy is. And just the first 20 pages of that book, it, it sounds on that, I think, incredibly. Um, the, the, and one of the main things that I thought about was their, uh, a lot of the, the things that they've done to non-white people, they first perfected on their own people. So to me, that kind of bolstered uh, Sam Blackman's premise throughout that entire show, and it speaks to everything that this book is about to let, let us understand. And um, weirdly enough, I just saw a documentary two days ago. Um, it was called uh, The First People on PBS, and they actually spoke to the fact that all Europeans have, and they also included Asians, genetically speaking, they, they said they did genetic testing and found that they actually have one to three percent Neanderthal genes. They they said not Africans, they said specifically Asians and specifically Europeans. And it speaks to me, to Michael Bradley, and I heard his show too, and he he acted like a lunatic and hung up, But it was okay. I love the way you handled that. But it speaks to what Michael Bradley put in the Iceman Inheritance as far as, this is before all of this information came out, he had discussed the fact that white people had Neanderthal genes. And that just came out, I just saw this documentary like a day or two ago. Um, But I think this book is a master stroke and I really thank you for bringing it out. It's poignant that you bring it out at this time because of everything that's going on, but I think it's a perfect time to do it. And um, thank you very much, and I'll meet my line there. Can you
2: hear?
6: Oh, Yes, sir, we can hear
2: you. Hi, right, guys. Tom Smith from New York. Oh. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers. Um, you guys been hitting it on the head, I've been getting the same amount of observations that um, I agree with Mr. Reed, so I just can't stand people, um, few observations I made from this book. Um, and the slave owners sound like they run a the plantation like a pimp, and, you know, like, no emotion, you know, it, just the way it sounded. I watched the documentary before where, you know, it was pimps talking. I mean, it sounds just like that's how they run the plantation. Um, you know, the slaves were like their children. You know, they had, um, and a lot of the things they were saying, how they kept the families apart, you know. um, And I think a lot of that history um, has rubbed off on us, you know, genetically, you know, through our our occasion records. You know, like, we, we just can't seem to stay together. You know, it, it's been embedded in us since slavery. Um, uh, another observation I made, um, uh, you know, the, the history of blacks fighting for this country. You know, I remember watching a movie a long time ago. It was a bunch of black soldiers. It was like a murder case or something. I, I, I can't remember was in it I think it's called a soldier story or something. But the army was segregated. But yet, this white man wanted to free his slave to protecting his son over his body, you know, during the Mexico or war with Mexico, you know, so the slaves went to war with the dog on the the sun, you know, this is crazy. Um uh another observation I made, I made this right at the beginning, is, you know, uh I find, you know, blacks identify with that Christian. Another thing they identify with a lot, um, and and it makes them very, you know, subserviently, is that Democrat. You know, and these Democrats were straight, clean I mean, these Democrats were brutal. And, um, but today, you can't tell a black person nothing about a Democrat. You know, I mean, it's like they can say that they, they're going to put blacks back to slavery. they will still vote for them as a Democrat. You know, it's crazy. Um, and I'll meet my line. Thanks for I'm choosing this book for us.
8: It's a great book. Can I be heard?
6: Yes, sir. We can hear you.
8: Uh, I thought this book was an excellent choice as well. I think it was uh, well worth my time and energy tonight to be listening, and I appreciate uh, you choosing this book. Uh, I noticed a few different things um, in the text that just really stood up to me that really um, uh, said, said to me that um, it's not just one or two bad white people out there, um, but it's, it's the average Joe, you know? um when we when we think of as you said you know a racist white supremacist we should think of a white woman with with the apron on and cookies and you know on the text it said tight or tillman was no radical uh was said to me that he was the average white man back then you know and um another part of the text said that tillman claimed to champion the rights and needs of the farmers but the aspect of his program that one could consider constructive especially his role in founding institutions of higher education for white men and women, he remained tightly bound by his fears of racial equality and federal power. So he was willing to hurt white people in order to maintain the system of racism, and white supremacy. And, it's, and it goes to show just how dedicated racist white supremacists are in terms of their participation in the system and its maintenance. Uh, Another thing that stuck out to me was um, when it said, like Tillman, they had studied political power in slaveholding school, and if they sometimes made different choices than those made by Tillman, it was a matter of tactics, not a sign that they were less committed than Tillman to mastery by any means necessary. They all agreed on the necessity of a white-dominated one-party South, and for the most part, they achieved the goal. And it reminded me of today how we have Democrats and Republicans. And you often hear people, especially, uh, unfortunately, a lot of uh, African-Americans say, well, oh, I'm Democrat. And they don't agree with the Republicans because they say those are the ones that are racist. And it's really just a matter of tactics and how they want to dominate all the rest of us that being non-white. And I've seen that, you know, with, Uh, how the Republicans used to be the abolitionists, quote-unquote, and the Democrats used to be the ones that wanted to be the slaveholders. So, you know, now that has changed, there's no different, though. And one other thing that I wanted to mention was that um, uh, the, the text that said, Sophia Tillman and her older children not only had kept the productive capital the patriarchs had left them, but had improved on it. During the booming 1850s, household wealth and land of slaves nearly doubled. So even after her husband had moved on and passed on, she still maintained that household and their ownership of the slaves and the productivity and wealth those slaves generated. So it just goes to show that even though uh, this white woman, Sophia Tillman, was oppressed in a sense by her own people, because she couldn't vote, she couldn't uh, uh, freely uh, sell land and so forth, she still was willing to maintain her role in the system of white supremacy and dominance. And that brings me to, I guess, my last point, which is, you know, the feminist movement that we as black people sometimes uh, play a role in or try to be a part of was never been meant for us. Yet we see in this, in this, this, this woman, Sophia Tillman, um, her dedication. And, and that's all I want to say. That's for the women's share. I'm mute
4: my Folks uh,
6: with us who had a hand up that we have not heard from, we missing about. Can I be heard? Yes,
7: sir. Uh yes uh it's, it's always good to uh when you are trying to uh learn and understand something if you uh uh attach to a source that uh directly uh can give you some uh, some insights on things so the book passes the, the, the test in that light like, um it just shows you on the depth. Uh, of the system of racism and white supremacy and the, uh, work that they are willing to do to maintain their, uh, position on non white people who they identify as their victims. And it gives us on the opposing side an idea of the amount of work and the attitude of seriousness that we must partake in in order to overcome this diabolical pestilence that has been affecting us for centuries. Uh, To, like, uh, uh, was said earlier by a caller, that uh, um, uh, a, a caller earlier mentioned something about uh, oh, oh yeah, oh how a white person who wouldn't even monetarily or power-based benefit from was still participating in, and that, that is a real sick psychology. Uh, I've, I've even seen it on, on a lighter tone in athletics, where a person who would attach themselves to a, a winning, let's say, football team, it never gets to play. Never gets to play, but just from the idea of wanting to be associated with the group. Uh, I give a bad example a crime a crime uh, group which is that's what white supremacy is is a crime is a crime group organization and everybody does, doesn't get to be the don but even even the, the the smaller guy who goes out and just pushes buttons for for the don he's glad to be a part of the group and uh, so that's where the connection the connections is psychologically you know. Uh, white culture is a uh, diabolical pathology. Uh I'm convinced. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm convinced on it. And this book I'm pretty sure is going to give us some 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 clarity and some uh a, a stamp a stamp of of uh of uh, confirming uh our thoughts even more when we do some direct research on individuals such as, such as this, 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 this beast that we are, we're studying. Thank you.
6: Anybody else with us who has been able to share yet? Anybody else? okay. Uh, looks like the other hand. I guess if you uh, can't, if you're in a loud area or what have you, uh, we should have a little bit more time. So we should still be able to share. Um, I guess what I would get in uh, to start with um, I'm glad to be able to do this book now, even though, as I said, I have wanted to read this book since the beginning of the year because uh, they had been talking about uh, Ben Tillman uh, at Clemson. Uh, Winthrop University, uh, different major institutions, flagship institutions of South Carolina that have statues and uh, and not just a building, it'll be like the main building on campus at his main Tillman Hall. I think that is the case uh, for Clemson. Uh, and I think the, the building at Winthrop is also not like, you know the trash storage facility or something. It'll be like the most, one of the most important buildings on the campus is named after Pitchfork Ben. Um, and I think two things, super important, which you've heard already, as I said, we're still very early in chapter one. We haven't even got to the, you know, the meat of, you know, things that he did to practice racism and terrorize black people. Um, but, uh, Okay, so um, just we haven't even got to the meat of it but the fact that you've already heard, this guy did not really do anything to hook up white people. It's not like a whole lot of white people can say yeah, I benefited, I came up because Ben Tillman was in office, you know, I I got a great new job and benefits and this, that, and the other. That is not the case um, for what he did. That's not his legacy and in fact, i We should cover it in the book, but I mean, there's so many just incredible articles and things that just touch on little highlights to show the pathology. At one point, they were in South Carolina, they were getting federal funds for education. Uh, But a part of the stipulation was that a certain amount of funds were supposed to be set aside for black school. And I mean, you can keep this like 2015. Uh, South Carolina state that we spent all that time talking about earlier this year, uh, their financial problems, HBCU in South Carolina, uh, that they had been defrauded for years where white people were not giving them all the money that they were supposed to get. So keep that in mind. But Ben Tillman, he says, hey, if we got to give money to the niggers, I would prefer not to take any money. So, I mean, he's literally turning down like tens of thousands of dollars uh, for Clemson, white students uh, at the time, turning down money for them uh, because he does not want to see a nickel go to niggers. I mean, that is a whole another level of pathology uh, that we're talking about. And I mean, that's what they have shrines and monuments to. Uh, it's, everything about this is about white terrorism. That is what we are worshiping that is the religion of white supremacy is terrorizing black people it's nothing else there like it's not even anything that they can point to um, that is important for uh, a variety of reasons and I think that's going to come up uh, in the text also think uh, it is important I, I think it was Mr. Reed we touched on maybe one of the other callers as well but just I think it will be interesting to read this book and hear that the <laughs> racists are democrats and not uh, Republicans, which I think is is good because uh, it is all one and the same. Uh, I think Dr. and she describes it. They are are just two different hands on the same body of white supremacy, which I think is apt. But I think that'll be that'll be good for us uh, as we proceed. Uh, I think fear—the fact that that came up so early, uh, and that this guy is a terrorist—like that, I see that widely when people talk about him being, even before everything happened with. Uh, Dylan Storm, Ruth, terrorist, proud terrorist. The aspect where they talk about how enslavement, having a system of enslavement, which is the system of white supremacy, was predicated on fear. That you had to condition black people to be kind of in a a perpetual state of fear because you're outnumbered. That's the unique thing about South Carolina that. White people are grossly outnumbered, right, in comparison to a lot of the other areas uh, in this area of the world at that time. Not that that's unique, South, uh, South Africa and some other places as well, but at least for the so-called colonies, uh, South Carolina is kind of unique in that aspect, grossly outnumbered, way more black people. So, uh, And Denmark, messy, right? Things happen all the time, black people looking for liberation. Um, fear. I think that is huge, particularly when you hear so frequently the justification that white people give. Oh, we had to shoot this black person 150 times because we are scared. I think that is fascinating to just hear it later. I mean, this as code. I feel like, you know, to some respect, you're just getting basic code about how things had to operate for this to work. Black people had to be totally afraid, terrorized with regards to white people. And I still see that's what we're talking about right now. That was Dylan Storm Ralph terrorist Um, what are do people have any thoughts on that as well as uh, in South Carolina apparently they did not have any laws uh, around uh, what they call interracial intercourse Uh, I thought that was a bit strange as well anybody have any any thoughts on either of those two here and the uh, laws governing sexual intercourse
8: Can I be heard?
6: Yes, sir, we can hear you.
8: Um, I think the aspect of fear is is, is absolutely uh crucial to the to the maintenance and and, and white supremacy being sustained for, for a long period of time. Um uh, without violence and deception, white supremacy couldn't exist. So so that being such a early aspect of this book, only further reveals um, the truth of racism, white supremacy, and why it is even to this day, we as black people are so afraid to speak out and to speak up. I mean, you look at aspects of the news and the media where black people are saying things like, we forgive you. If we weren't so afraid, if we thought justice was really going to be handled, we wouldn't be saying these things of "I apologize," or you know, we 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 uh, we, you know, we forgive you. You know, we wouldn't be so quick to to just accept these things. You know, and it's just really a demonstration of you know fear of losing your job, fear of um, not being able to support your kids, fear of being in prison, fear of being killed by the cops. Like to see these images all the time on TV of black people being killed, but you never see images of white people being killed by cops. Even if it is a black cop, on a rare occasion, you still won't hear it like you do. So when I may get pulled over by a cop that is just curious about where where I'm going or where I'm coming from, that, that, that automatically relates to what I've seen on TV in my psychology and my thinking. I'm gonna automatically see that cop pass me in the in the in the mirror, in my rear view, and whether I understand it or not in my consciousness that 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 recording of media that I've seen in the past is gonna have an aspect or play a part in how I act towards that police officer. So I think it's really, really important for us to understand why it is they make us so afraid, and why it has to be a constant, um, a constant war on somebody of color. That's that's my comment.
3: I have some thoughts on fear um, as well. Um, this Scotty again from North Carolina, Gaston County, and I'm seeing it on display here: fear in, in black folks. Again, for those that don't. They, they don't live among these I mean all of them are racist suspects but the ones that you know Gus y'all did that program about um, what was it uh, it might not have been the entire program but you played the clip from I think it was PBS uh, talking about the number of clans people North Carolina having, having the most I'm sure South Carolina probably came in a, in a close second and whatnot, and how they use that symbolism man to instill fear in us and I know that that is why there is a Confederate monument up there at the polling place. I don't know how long that's been, but I get the I, I'm seeing I'm 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 hearing a subliminal message. That's why they are strategic strategically placed. Um, I was looking at a map of all the court. Uh, they were documenting. It's ongoing right now. They're trying to document online where all these monuments are to the to these terrorists. And in North Carolina, I was, you know, I didn't look at the other states, but I looked in North Carolina. They're all at, at courthouses. They're all at courthouses. And I don't know if they have them at other polling places, but they are at the one where we go. And that is to intimidate black folks. You know, they didn't want us to vote. And, and so that, that, that symbol, people, the people, the racist terrorists out there want to say this is our heritage. Yes, it's your heritage. Your heritage of terrorism, because that's what the Klan adopted after the Confederacy. Didn't none of these people in the South Carolina or North Carolina fight under those flags? That was General Lee's flag out of northern Virginia. They had their own regimental flags. But the Klan, a terrorist organization, adopted that flag. And so down here, we know to associate those symbols with terrorism. And I remember, I was talking about it today, an attempt to intimidate the black school uh, uh, population um, at East Gaston. And they had like a pep rally and, you know, for, I think it was a basketball game, football game, something like that was coming up. So everybody got out of class. It's predominantly white, but they're, you know, probably about 10%, 13% uh black population. So we're all in the gym, sitting in the bleachers and everybody's doing like their little skits or whatnot. And so here come these four white males carrying a platform with another white male sitting on top of it like he's some kind of freaking pharaoh or something like that. And then he's got the Confederate flag tied around his neck like, you know, he like a cape, like Superman. And so he gets up, you know, they get to the middle of the gym floor and he gets up. And then he starts waving that flag and just, you know, making up seeing gestures, you know, at us. And, and nobody said nothing. Nobody went crazy. We didn't run out there and beat them down or nothing like that. You know, uh, 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 but I, that's what that was to do. They, he he learned that from his father, who probably learned it from his father, that, you know, this is our symbol. This is our terrorist flag. And you want to strike fear in these Negroes, then this is, you, you know, that's what I got from seeing that. I, I was in high school. And and so, you know, the the fear now I'm seeing, like, for example, and I'm not bashing black people because I understand if you're afraid with the racist terrorism, it's only the the only 13 percent of the population here in Gaston County is black. Eighty percent is 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 racist suspects. And so when they were asked about asked the local chapter of the NAACP president they interviewed him with what's going on down there in South Carolina with the removal of the flag and stuff. And so they they asked him about it. What do you think about, you know, this flag and, and these symbols around here in Gaston County and the one at the courthouse, you know? And so he going to say, well, I think it needs to be moved. That's an inappropriate place to have a Confederate, you know, this big Confederate monument to people who, who fought to enslave other people. But, but, we ain't going to worry about it because we got more pressing concerns. Now, what pressing concerns that man got? Because, you know, I hardly ever hear them point anything. Charlotte, yeah, I'll hear about Charlotte. Lincoln County, yeah, I've heard about Lincoln County when, you know, they had the racist performer come up there and blackface. That NAACP uh, chapter president said something. The one here in Gaston County, they never say nothing about nothing. So I'm like, what pressing concerns do you have? And so I know automatically he's afraid and he and, 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 and it's a logical based fear you know but my thing is don't seek these positions if, if you're living in that much fear because you're in a leadership position and we can't have fearful leaders so-called lead, but he's not doing anything and so I, I but I'm not bashing him because he know he must have been living here a long time and so he he don't want to He don't want to do anything to draw attention to himself and perhaps attack on his family. That's fear. I'm seeing it. I asked some of my high school friends, you know, go with me to to the courthouse. Let's sign these complaints. Let's go up here. You know, I ain't heard back from none of them. That's fear. And and, and it's kind of quite shameful, but at the same time, I understand where that fear is coming from, and I don't hate them, and I ain't feeling... I'm not going to name-call them. They told me no, so no. If I got to go up there by myself and fill out a complaint, then I'll do that, and then it'll be over and done with, and I will know within myself that I tried. I did something. I didn't let them paralyze me with fear. i mute my line.
6: Mm-hmm. Uh, we will go ahead and get to the second audio clip just to make sure that we have time uh, so that people can share based on, you know, what they hear coming up. Uh, if you... Had comments that you didn't get to share, just make a note, uh, jot them down or what have you, and we should have ample time for you to, to share if you, uh, had some, some thoughts that you did not, uh, get to, uh, share. Anywho, uh, again, for me, it's, uh, kind of the lower portion of, uh, page 20, where we are picking up, we're still in, uh, chapter one, uh, again, Stephen Kantrowitz, uh, Ben Tillman, and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy. Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number two. of the ties that bound such people to white patriarchal households allowed them to associate freely with one another and who was to say what they would do. As Edgefield Advertiser warned, a few privileged Negroes will instill corruption and disobedience in all the slaves within their reach. By 1850, hemmed in by law and suspicion, Fewer than 200 free blacks resided in Edgefield County, making up less than 0.5% of its population. In the world of Ben Tillman's youth, these people who blurred the racial boundary between slavery and freedom were an isolated and increasingly mistrusted minority. Other blurrings of that important boundary revealed fissures within white patriarchal solidarity itself. Sociability and commerce between slaves and the poorest strata of white society created a biracial underworld in the slave south. Black and white South Carolinians frequently worshipped together and not always in congregations dominated by whites were neatly divided into masters and slaves. The state's lawmakers, sensitive to the rights of masters who wished to guide the religious lives of their slaves, barred patrollers from breaking up interracial religious meetings provided that the congregations had white majorities and the meetings took place before 9 p.m. Other meetings and assemblies merited no such protection. White violators' names were to be reported to a magistrate and patrollers could whip non-white participants, including free blacks. Whether or not abolitionists through propaganda or ideas passed within these black and white circles, their very existence constituted a threat to proper lines of authority. Slaveholders knew that their slaves frequently engaged in illegal commerce with white men, a deeply troubling collaboration against slave discipline. Such illegal trade, traffic, flew in the face of slaveholders' authority, their property rights, and their insistence on white male solidarity. Masters warned one another about the evil influence of disorderly and ill-behaved persons, whether white or black. As the Edgefield Advertiser had noted in discussing the murder of Michael Long, it was through trading stolen property with wicked free people that slaves learned rebelliousness. The penalties for trafficking were therefore severe. The slaves involved were punished at their master's discretion and the white men involved faced criminal sanction. Local planners resolved in 1846 to rid their area of the menace forming the Savannah River Anti-Slave Traffic Association and in the early 1850s, the Beach Island Farmers Club reconstituted itself as an agricultural and police society. Indictments and prosecutions for trafficking filled Edgefield's court dockets, and numerous white Edgefieldians received up to two months in jail and fines of $100, sentences only slightly lighter than those handed down to white men who killed other men's slaves without proper cause. The absolute loss of property in trafficking could not compare to the loss of a major capital asset like a slave. But as the advertiser had suggested, the influence of such white men on slaves constituted a threat to masters' lives and to the system of slavery itself. The defense of planter power required disciplining white people as well as black, but the punishment of white men for interfering with relations of mastery raised the uncomfortable possibility that slaveholders and non-slaveholders had fundamentally different interests. The Cost of Violence The violent careers of Ben Tillman's older brothers suggested yet another fissure among white men in this society. The tension between slaveholders' rhetoric of white male equality and their well-learned habit of violently asserting their authority against all challenges. Even pro-slavery ideologues ostensibly celebrating white male supremacy might describe the virtues of their society in aristocratic terms. Planter philosopher James Henry Hammond wrote that slavery had created a large class elevated above the necessity of any kind of labor, who were able to take enlarged and many views of everything, to govern masses, to sway comparatively a broad expanse of territory, to control and to scorn and to be controlled except by kind, affection, sound reason, and just laws. The existence of such a class to which Hammond happened to belong was essential to a high state of civilization, but what of the majority of white men who did not own slaves, who did in fact have to labor, and who perhaps constituted the masses, Hammond found temperamentally difficult. Expectations of mastery were hard to limit or repress, and white male slaveholders frequently trod on the feelings and perceived rights of other white men. In the 1850s, as Ben Tillman gained a formal Education at the hands of country schoolmasters he also learned from the dramas of white male violence that pervaded his society. His father had left a mixed legacy to Tillman's older brothers, and they in turn instructed their youngest sibling in the rules governing of violence among white men. The elder Benjamin Tillman, fond of drinking and gambling was among a group of nine men convicted for riot, assault, and battery by an Edgefield jury in 1841. He subsequently sought to cultivate the virtues of restraint, becoming a member of a local temperance society, but his rehabilitation would have been swift in any case. Physical conflicts such as brawling and assault were common and county juries included many men who had recently been disciplined by those same bodies. Punishments of white men for violence against another tended to be light and offenders who had been duly punished remained full members of the community. In 1843, the elder Tillman served on the grand jury that had punished him two years earlier. The following year, he was foreman of a coroner's jury, the planter continued to oversee the living and the dead. Not all conflicts were so easily resolved. Large slaveholders, dependent for their survival and prosperity on the credibility of the masks they wore, extended this sensitivity to appearances into other areas of their lives. Young men of the planter class grew up watching their father's ease and forbearance give way almost without warning to violent punishment, and they learned to play out the drama of mastery in relation to other white men as well as to slaves. Benjamin Tillman's sons understood from an early age that no slight or suggestion of insincerity would pass unanswered. Their obsession with honor Their refusal to let another person question their words, deeds, or appearances took its urgency from the exigencies of slaveholding. Ben Tillman feared that his teenage son George, having spent a year as an overseer, had learned the lessons of plantation management and white manhood all too well. In an 1844 letter to prospective schoolmaster Iveson Brooks, Tillman noted that George might become involved in social collisions. The teenager's disposition is such not to submit to imposition or insult by any, he explained. To submit, of course, was to act like a slave, not an independent, honorable man. So the father was perhaps boasting as well as warning. But a young man had to learn how to handle his honor. A carefully nuanced negotiation mediated by mutual acquaintances might restore social equilibrium. This, and not a potentially deadly duel, was the goal of the affair of honor. One way or another, however, white men had to maintain both individual images and self-images of indomitability and a collective solidarity that transcended their individual squabbles. Although George became a lawyer and state legislature, his disposition eventually proved to be just as dangerous as his father had feared. In July 1856, at a gambling table in an Edgefield Hotel, Tillman demanded his winnings on a bet of ten dollars. A local white artisan, J.H. Christian, supported the dealer's contention that Tillman had bet only $5. Tillman called Christian a damned liar. Christian replied in kind, whereupon Tillman pulled out a pistol and shot his gainsayer dead. This was not a legitimate expression of white male mastery, as one witness opined there was nothing said sufficient to provoke the murder. But if there was, it was Tillman who gave it. The Edgefield grand jury indicted Tillman for murder, whereupon he fled, joining William Walker's campaign to create a slaveholding republic in Nicaragua. It was two years before George returned to Edgefield to face justice, but neither his crime nor his flight rendered him anathema to polite society. Convicted of manslaughter, he served a two-year sentence under lenient conditions. He practiced law from within his jail cell and before his term was over he had been elected to the state senate. To be sure he had murdered a respectable white mechanic an independent and honest man according to the Edgefield Advertiser but his act was hardly unique. The same hotel where he killed Christian had been the scene of another murder of one white man by another only six months before. Furthermore, Tillman's was a crime of passion. Had he committed a different sort of murder, had he, for instance, plotted to murder his wife and then blamed a slave for the crime, as a white Edgefield man had done earlier in 1856, he might have earned the death sentence. George's crime, by contrast, was palliated by its close connection to qualities that his society valued in its leaders, self-assertion and the capacity for explosive violence. After serving his sentence, he was welcomed into the highest levels of his community's civic life. He returned just in time to save the family household from the ruin of improper governments. In his absence, John... The next oldest son had run roughshod over the family's feelings and finances. Ben, the youngest, remembered John as a bully, naturally tyrannical in his disposition, who lorded over my mother and the other children to his heart's content. John also speculated in slaves amassing a $20,000 debt that took his mother several years to pay off. His depredations extended beyond the household. At least three times between 1854 and 1860, he was indicted for riot or assault. In 1858, found guilty in two separate cases, he served 10 weeks in jail and was fined $80. Even a convicted miscreant could claim gentlemanly status. That year, John also initiated an ominous exchange of letters with a neighbor asking him to clarify whether or not he had characterized my conduct as inconsistent with that of a gentleman. To then Tillman, looking back a half century later, the contrast between George and John was far more stark than their comparatively violent careers would suggest. Indeed, he offered George and John as models of legitimate and illegitimate authority, but one, a second father to us all, The other, wild and dissipated. The final confrontation he remembered between them made the contrast clear. When George returned to Edgefield in 1858 and confronted John about his misdeeds, John drew a pistol. George, being recalled, tore his shirt open and said, Shoot, you damn coward! You are afraid to shoot, for no brave man ever treats widows and orphans as you have done. After waiting a minute with his bared bosom, he turned and walked upstairs and John slunk off. John's undisciplined and irresponsible power, potentially the ruin of the Tillman's fortunes, had been overcome by George's proper understanding of patriarchal responsibilities, which included sound financial practices, proper treatment of dependence, and, not least, physical courage. Christians' loved ones might not have seen George's virtues in the same light, but to ten-year-old Ben, they had embodied proper white manhood. John, by contrast, followed his ruinous course to his own destruction. While under indictment for assault with intent to kill, John was himself murdered in May 1860. Anti- -anti anti-slavery Slaveholders struggled to contain the paradoxes of white male independence but they saw abolition and even free soil as threats of a different order. As the United States expanded across the continent southern elites came to see the increasingly determined anti-slavery movement as a threat to their liberties and lives. Before long, they feared they would become an insignificant voice, outvoted in the U.S. Senate and overwhelmed in the House of Representatives. In 1820, they drew the line, fighting for the admission of Missouri as a slave state. They ultimately won a compromise that guaranteed slavery's extension into the rich portion of the Louisiana Purchase below 36 degrees north latitude. They also fought to prevent national policy from favoring northern manufacturing over slave-holding agriculture. South Carolina took the lead in confronting the national government during the nullification crisis a decade later. The cases differed in important respects, but they both revealed the widespread belief of slaveholders that unless they possessed a virtual veto over federal legislation, they and their institution would not long remain safe. The 1830s witnessed the growth of Northern abolitionism, a biracial movement that denounced slavery as a moral evil, Northern endorsements of Nat Turner's 1831 uprising, Irrevocably identified abolition with the slaveholders' worst nightmares. By the 1840s, activists on both sides of the slavery debate warned of elaborate plots to subvert the republic. Anti slavery activists thought a slave power conspiracy wanted to rule the nation as it ruled black slaves, while pro slavery activists feared that a few more free states would tip the national balance enabling an abolitionist federal government to outlaw slavery throughout the nation and turn the southern social order on its head. Controversy over the annexation of Texas, followed by war with Mexico, put the question of slavery's westward expansion at the center of national political debate. Most Americans assumed that this war, fought on the U.S. side mainly by troops from southern states, would result in the annexation of considerable new North American territory by the United States. It was in this context, in August 1846, that Pennsylvanian's David Wilmot rose in Congress to propose that slavery be prohibited in any territories taken from Mexico. The Wilmot proviso proved too sharp-edged, weapon for even the well-practiced defenders of sectional compromise to parry with complete success. Wilmot's resolution gained the support of many other northern Democrats, worrying those who had counted on the national party structure to preserve the peace and suggesting that even a reliably anti-abolitionist party could not hold sectional feelings in check. Even worse, By shifting the debate from abolition to anti-extension, the Wilmot Proviso made anti-slavery politics central to northern political debate. Such resistance to the expansion of slavery made it clear to some South Carolina legislatures that the incendiary machinations of northern fanatics had penetrated the halls of Congress. In addition to offering the possibility of martial glory, war with Mexico had promised new lands where poor men and younger sons might earn their fortunes. Edgefield's white men had supported the war with gusto. Throughout the conflict, the Edgefield Advertiser reported on the Mexican exploits of the Edgefield Hussars a company that included the Tillman family's eldest son, Thomas. In the summer of 1847, less than two weeks after his brother Ben's birth, Private Thomas Tillman was killed at chubagusco becoming one of Edgefield's many casualties in the war. Upon receiving this news, a committee of local worthies resolved that they warmly appreciated the courage and spirit. He had displayed, but Thomas's body could not be sent home to receive due honors in South Carolina because he had been buried in Mexico in a mass grave when Edgefield's slaveholders organized to oppose the Wilmot Proviso, therefore, some of them had already invested their sons' lives in the new territory at Edgefield's anti Wilmot Proviso Assembly. The outspoken A.P. Aldrich warned of the controlling power abolitionists had gained over northern politicians and of a design to interfere with the institution of slavery. Such interference, Aldrich and others suggested, should trouble non-slaveholders as well. In theory, slaveholding households were families, and any interference with their workings constituted interference with a white man's right to govern his household. Challengers to master's authority therefore constituted threats to husband's authority and vice versa. And if such challenges could threaten or undermine the household prerogatives of large slaveholders, the most powerful white men, then less powerful white men could hardly expect their own authority to remain secure. By 1850, The controversy over slavery in the West had become a national political crisis. To accomplished peacemakers like Henry Clay, the answer lay in a new compromise package, one that would resolve the interwoven issues of slavery and the territories. But to suspicious slaveholder politicians like Clay's old nemesis, South Carolina's John C. Calhoun, no legislative compromise would suffice. Indeed, nothing short of a new constitutional settlement would restore Southern men and slavery to their proper place of honor in the nation's councils. Calhoun believed that this, too, would probably fail, and even as he proposed anti-majoritarian constitutional remedies, he and his disciples began to lay the organizational groundwork for disunion in the name of Southern rights. The language of southern rights was intended to rally white men against northerners who sought to contain slavery, but even as it identified slaveholding as a southern right worthy of impassioned defense, it did not place slavery itself at the rhetorical heart of its claims. Rather, it appealed to shared commitment to white manly independence and suggested that by infringing on white Southern men's rights to carry their property and way of life into new lands, anti-slavery forces were relegating the region's white men, the South, in its revealing shorthand to the status of subordinates. Indeed, slaveholders had difficulty discussing infringements of a citizen's rights without suggesting that the victim of such affronts had been enslaved. The staunchly pro-extensionist Edgefield advertiser urging the county's white men to brook no compromise refused to so grossly insult their acknowledged bravery and independence as to suppose for a moment that they will submit to these wanton infringements on their rights. Submission was for dependents, not for white men. The Reverend Brooks, for his part, demonstrated that he was as committed to protecting southern white men's collective rights from northerners' schemes as he was to protecting his own property rights from William Lumpkin's depredations. In 1850, he published a lengthy pamphlet against northern reproaches and encroachments in which he accused Abolitionists not only of seeking to unleash a servile rebellion, but also of planning to march south and make the slaveholders themselves into slaves. Slavery as political metaphor and slavery as social institution blurred as Brooks interpreted abolitionism for a local audience. Abolitionists, slaveholders believed, were plotting to foment a bloody slave revolt. Under normal circumstances, proper discipline could catch potential slave rebels early and make examples of them. But how could planters defend themselves if the catalyst for revolt came from outside the system? During the summer of 1849, the arrival of abolitionist pamphlets in the mail alarmed upcountry elites. How the Edgefield advertiser demanded had the senders obtained the names of those to whom they addressed the pamphlets? What other information did they have? And what else did these secret agents intend? There are no doubt men lurking at this time in our midst, declared the paper. The community should have an eye upon them at a time like the present. Vigilance is the sacred duty of every citizen. That fall, a Spartanburg Committee of Safety imprisoned a man named Barrett, who was purportedly the author or distributor of these pamphlets. Enough confusion and controversy attended his peremptory arrest that the authorities permitted Barrett to leave the state, but the advertiser warned that any future North abolitionists found in the South would be tried, condemned, and hung as spies. Edgefield residents even petitioned the General Assembly to prohibit the importation of slaves or the immigration of free blacks into the state from any point to the North or Northwest, lest the infection spread. Although the committee voted to reject the petition, Recognizing its contradiction of the Southern right's claim that slave property was as portable as any other kind of property, a few members understood and sympathized with the petitioner's intent. In a rare minority report, they offered a domino theory of abolitionism. Slaves in the border states of the Chesapeake, by virtue of their proximity to pre states, had already been indoctrinated with the principles of insubordination and even of abolitionism. Their movement into South Carolina would do more than injure and corrupt South Carolina slaves. The steady drain of slaves from tobacco to cotton-growing regions would eventually render South Carolina itself a border state, with Maryland, Virginia, and even North Carolina hostile to our peculiar institution. Isolated and encircled, the state would be helpless against the abolitionists. If abolition were forced on it, that rally of shepherds would turn on the blacks so wickedly set free, armed police would immediately spring into into existence. Hammond explained and before long the African race would be exterminated or reduced again to slavery. Throughout 1849 and 1850, some of South Carolina's white citizens tried to transform this martial mobilization into secession from the Union. One observer believed that the military parade of an armed force he witnessed at an anti wilmot proviso meeting in Charleston was kept up to scare the government of the United States as well as the Negroes. Those who wanted South Carolina to leave the Union, no matter what other states did, became known as secessionists. The Edgefield advertiser, placing itself firmly in this camp, solemnly declared in the summer of 1849 that we now look to disunion as our only hope. Secessionists, such as George Tillman, contrasted their self-assertion with their opponent's lack of manliness. The Edgefield paper snidely offered space in its columns to any opponents of resistance or, to speak plainly, submissionists who desire to advocate their cause before the public. Authority over one's dependence was no more important than equality with one's fellow citizens. When secession met with opposition from men who feared it would disrupt the cotton economy, a writer calling himself Secession accused the commercial interests of Charleston and other towns, compromising fifty thousand or so white citizens, of attempting to dominate the upcountry's five hundred thousand white inhabitants. Secession urged rural districts to send large delegations to the state's secession convention, hoping that the sight of an army of sturdy backswoodsmen may revive the drooping patriotism of Charleston and reinvigorate the flagging courage of her degenerate sons and perfumed fopplings. Flagging and drooping urban manhood could be invigorated by a manly secessionist stand. A headline in the Edgefield Advertiser a few months earlier claimed that by electing secessionist delegates, the counties of Newberry and Lawrence had proved themselves erect. Another writer attempted to persuade slaveholders that men's mastery over human property meant nothing compared to their willingness to resist oppression. Every cowardly little monster can tyrannize over his slaves, he wrote, but slaveholders who wielded only this kind of power would seem very ridiculous if they simultaneously allowed themselves to endure from the hand of a strong man the foulest enormities that ever blighted the prosperity of a once free people. If a man's sovereignty was the essence of his self-worth, as sacred as the virgin chastity of your daughter's It could hardly suffice to have the respect and fear of only one's slaves. Proper manhood required defying the strong as well as dominating the weak. Some white men experienced the secession movement as coercion, an assault on their right to pursue independent thought and action. Out and out Unionists even wondered whether secessionists saw them as free white men, citizens and equals, or as slaves. In 1849, one Southern Unionist claimed to be a little surprised that a Unionist acquaintance from South Carolina was suffered to go about Mr. Calhoun's plantation so much without a pass. The bitter quip exposed the rigid dichotomies of power and subordination in the society in which a dissident quickly became an anti-citizen, a slave, likening civil society in South Carolina to a plantation under a despotic leader. This critique suggested that the state's citizens were free to vote on secession only as long as they voted as their masters wished. For the time being, the secessionists' rhetoric and organization did not carry the day against their somewhat more moderate foes. Cooperationists, despite their name, supported secession as well, but they insisted that South Carolina should only act in concert with other slave states. The divide between factions took place among complex political and economic lines. In general, cooperation gained the support of those with strong commercial ties who stood to lose the most if South Carolina became isolated, and those yeomen and non-slaveholders least invested in slavery, whereas planters and smaller slaveholders provided the bulk of support for secession. Despite the efforts of George Tillman and other local secession at- activists, when it came time to elect delegates to the state's special convention on secession in 1851, cooperationists won the Edgefield, by a single vote. In the end, nearly 60% of South Carolina's voters rejected delegates who favored South Carolina seceding on its own. Most staunch secessionists realized that South Carolina's white men would have to be much more united if they were to lead the region. Secession. Although secession failed in 1851, following decades escalating Crisis over slavery strengthened white political solidarity against perceived northern threats. Still, old intra state rivalries persisted. Upcountry white men continued to argue that they were dramatically underrepresented in the state legislature, and during the eighteen fifties, George Tillman and other advocates of greater upcountry representation gained election. Lower house districts were, in fact, apportioned according to a combination of white population and taxable property, a formula favoring the wealthy coastal producers of rice and long-stable cotton. Meanwhile, the state senate granted additional seats to low country districts, such as Charleston, that consisted of more than one historic parish. Since South Carolina's Constitution gave the legislature the power to choose the state's senators and presidential electors, as well as many local officials, this scheme of apportionment was particularly significant. The development of industries and railroads highlighted the uneven geographical distribution of political power and state aid among the state's white men. Edgefield, arguably, had the most serious grievance against the state leadership in this regard. As a result, men such as George Tillman entered state politics in the late antebellum years with a well-articulated critique of sectional favoritism and the low-country oligarchy, a critique that echoed the 18th century complaints of the back-country regulators. But when the sectional crisis heated up, intrastate sectionalism cooled. Even as the editorialist secession struck at the manhood of urban commercial interests, he was at pains to distance himself from the struggle between up-country and low-country elites. Context of White Supremacy We should be back uh, next Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, we will be on page 30, still in chapter 1. We really haven't even gotten to the main character and meat of the book. Man, it should be fun once we get there. Uh, folks would like to participate, the number to dial, 760 569 Seven six the code five six four nine four three pound, press star six, if you would like to participate if you uh, have the program on in the background or what have you uh, everybody's uh line should be open to folks who would like to chime in. We ended at such a, a pivotal point um, that comes up all the time. White people definitely argue, fight, fuss amongst themselves, absolutely. Uh, people even bring that up to try to suggest that you know it's not racism, that there's just lots and lots of mistreatment uh, that goes on. Uh, that point at the end there, uh, that in South Carolina, when it comes down to the come down, we are not going to be arguing amongst each other about racism we are going to get on the same page uh, that that is consistent uh... where white people do get it together when it comes to racism white supremacy they do not let their little internal squabbles uh... mess up the enterprise the religion too frequently uh... but everybody who uh... dialed in with the hand up should be with us uh... if you have commentary you would like to share feel free greetings Uh, i just wanted to
7: uh... Follow through on on that uh, question of fear. Uh, I can recall Dr. Welsing saying years ago uh, that a good reason for black males to uh, meet is to discuss that very subject of fear in an honest in an honest way. Uh, We all, I I believe, anyway, on on this broadcast, have an understanding that uh, the uh, two major methods of the system of racism and white supremacy is deception and direct violence. That that, uh, uh, deadly concoction breeds confusion and fear. Uh, That's what the system of racism white supremacy is about as far as producing in its victims it's fear. Uh because it is uh a terrorist uh network globally and uh I'm pretty much aware that white people understand this that we we do fear them on a collective basis. Now just As such, Mr. Fuller stating that there are some cracks that have been produced within the system. That tells me that there are some some non-white people who either have been working on their fear successfully or don't have fear. But I would still state that logic would tell me that the the percentage level is not where it should be. i.e., uh, if, if anyone heard, like I heard of the uh, the advent of white males uh, uh, rallying or stalking or marching, whatever you want to call it, through uh, Fifth Ward in Houston with their rifles.
6: Anybody heard of that other than me? I have, but that is kind of uh, off topic. Yeah. Uh but I I I
7: was just mentioning that not from the standpoint of digging into it, but from the standpoint of it gives me an indication that those white males uh one of the reasons why they they, they do it because they don't they they don't think they're gonna get any, any reaction from non white black people. Uh so uh but uh, that that's just my, my take on the, the, the fear factor. And I am I'm anticipating uh when you get directly to the uh the principle of this of this book. Thank you. Can I be heard? Uh, yes we can be. Oh okay. Thank you. Um yeah, I wanted to also speak to the um the question of here that you talked, to, talked about earlier. Um I, I listened to Jeremiah Kamala, the episode you had with him on it, and he brought up something very important. He talked about imprinting um, and and but in case anyone doesn't know what infanting is, is essentially if a person, a human being, ends up becoming a surrogate parent to a wild animal. So, for example, um, I seen in thirteen there was a, a white male scientist who uh, wanted to do an experiment, and he used wild turkeys. And he basically took the eggs of wild turkeys. He would talk to the, to the, to the, uh, the fledging turkeys while they were in the eggs, so they would get used to his voice. And once they were born, they basically thought he was their parent. And he basically raised these turkeys, and the whole documentary followed them from the egg until they finally left him. So ultimately, um, when he spoke of imprinting, he talked about uh, the fact that he felt that that was what was done to uh, African people during the the slave trade. And I believe that we have been imprinted with the concept of fear to the point that it's now genetically passed on, and uh, I think it really started with uh, African mothers trying to save their male children uh, from being destroyed by white males. So um, they basically dumbed down the temperament uh, of the black male and also made, helped to cultivate an, uh, a fear and subservience to white people that I think now is in uh, June. And uh, just to give you an example, just recently my son has sent me a video on YouTube. It's called Kids Go to Jail. And in the video, in the video now is almost reaching a half a million views, in the video is a black male with three black children in a supermarket. And I guess the kids were like, asking up or something in the store. So he says to them, I'm going to take you to jail. And the kids, all three of them, these are toddlers. These kids, I don't think they're probably older than the oldest of them was probably the girl and I think she might have been about four or five. The other two were, were they were all basically toddlers. And when he first sent it, he sent it thinking it was funny, and when he first sent it, um, I laughed at it too, and then I said and then as he, and then the as the video goes on, he keeps repeating he's gonna take them to jail and the kids got to hysterically cry about not wanting to go to jail. And it just triggered in me, um, something where I thought about it, that these kids are so young, but they already understand the ramifications of white right supremacy on a level of they know what jail is, and they know the ramifications of what going to jail is. So I actually sent a message to my son, and I said, um, I told him exactly what I thought. I said, this, this, this really hit me in a, in a different way, because it's not funny. And for their parents, for their father to actually say that, I thought it was crazy, uh, um, sir,
6: that is that is uh, interesting, but that is kind of off-topic. Uh, in fact, uh, for the rest of the folks, uh, the fear stuff, if it's just going to be a uh, tangent about other things that you've seen or videos and conversations and all that, you know, I'm not, uh, I'd rather, because we have about 15 minutes left, so I'd rather uh, focus on the text if things that out from there. But that is an interesting anecdote. Did you have anything else from the text? Uh, yes, i just
7: Actually um, I think this is a very good text but it made me back. that, um, and I need my laundry. thank you. I'm sorry about that.
6: No apologies, no apologies. Uh anybody else? Particularly if you if you have not shared at all, definitely you should go ahead and speak up now. But anybody else have comments they want to get Um
5: good evening Jess. Good evening to the other callers, and good evening. Uh this is Karma. And I, I was I was I was like listening to the part about the patriarchy because I, I, did, I didn't have so many distractions when you guys got there. But uh, you know, maybe that's why white women are, are just so truly heinous because you know if if you're getting if you're getting beat in a certain prison cell every day and then you get to get out and beat somebody else, then you you might you might have I mean you're you're. Opportunity to mistreat someone is so rare if you're pathologically inclined to do that, that you may be hell on wheels. I mean, you just may be vicious beyond, you may be the lowest thing on the totem pole, and because of that, you are the most vicious thing on the totem pole. So maybe living in that household with that white man and finally getting to exercise a little bit of authority. Maybe that's what like makes white women so particularly vicious. And, and I just I just started watching, um, well, listening to a crazy YouTube by white men, and it's either called "White Men Go Your Own Way" or "Men Go Your Own Way." Either way, it's white men, and they talk about how oppressive it is to be a man with white women, you know. And and it's you know they're talking about white women. They're just like how they hate them, how they despise them, how white women are the most awful things on the face of the earth and how men should go their own way and not really get too caught up in women because women are truly, truly heinous. And this is just a conversation amongst white men about white women. So, you know, there's something in that. There's just something in there that I, I just can't possibly put my hands on. And I know we've talked about it writing mythology and stuff before but, but this is some real hate of white women, you know, and I guess maybe you could say, oh, it's love gone wrong or something, but it's like it's like the same things that white people do to us, these white men do to the white women, they say, they just work white men to death it's just we work ourselves to death for them. It doesn't matter what we do; we do anything just so that we can have a simple moment of peace and freedom, not to be harassed and harangued. It is the death of us to get too close to these heinous creatures because they don't know how to behave like human beings. And that's the gist of it. And so, I, I the, the, it's just very fascinating. It's just the white men are sounding. I don't know, it's just incredible. But anyway, so maybe that's why white women are so heinous, because they're lower on the totem pole and and when they get a chance to to exercise dominion over someone, they're just completely pathological about it. They they have no restraint. That's my comment.
8: May I be heard?
6: Yes sir, we can hear you.
9: Um, yeah, I, I, I'm. Wow, wow! I don't know what to say. L- 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 listening to this, it goes back to, again to Neely Foley Jr. It is complete domination. The part about the free blacks that were living in the in the uh, particular county. Um, there was a guy. I and you probably know who he is Gus. He was on um, Amy Goodman. He was the only one that I could think of lately that actually talked about structural racism. I think his name was Kevin something or. Um, I can't think of his name, Alexander or some, something like that. And I was surprised because uh, it caught my attention because he was in South Carolina being um, interviewed by Amy Goodman. And he talked about structural racism and hypocrisy of all those people who want to take down the flag. But um, the the complete domination in all areas of activity, I mean, I mean, they had it covered from the controlling the narrative in the newspaper to, um, uh, the events, uh, after the, uh, after the land of being able to ex- expand, uh, slavery in, in, the territories acquired from Mexico or taken from Mexico, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, it, it is just, it is just a complete, complete, total domination. They don't leave anything to chance. Um, and, and again, uh, like the, the caller said before, uh, operates on two premises, brute force and deception. Thank you.
6: I'll mute myself. Thank you. Uh, Kevin Alexander Gray, I think is the, the black male that you're talking about. He's speaking about white supremacy uh, and democracy now. He's been on a few times uh, over the past week or so. Uh, any other folks uh, have comments they want to get in? We got everybody who had uh, a hand up, everybody who had a hand up, uh, who had something to share, he was able to speak. Yes, can I be You're a little low if you can speak up, Mr. Demir Ford. <coughs> okay, how is it? That is
1: better. Okay. Well, uh, the part that I didn't get to share before was that they were showing a, a pattern of the uh, Southern class slave structure, the way that it was, um, you know, the way it originated and how it was set up. And I also noticed uh, reference to animals, you know, page 16, referring to, you know, the nearest link with monkeys, and um, state-sanctioned uh, racism, the law uh, forbid whites to uh, manumit their slaves even when they had some reason, you know, to do so upon their death or whatever. They made laws that overload them to further oppress slaves. And this bit about the abolitionists versus the uh, slaveholders. It's almost like the ultimate insult because, you know, it's almost like that an oppressed people, slaves or whatever, couldn't possibly rise up on their own to seek their freedom it had to be abolitionists you know whites that was behind it and then they could put all the blame on something else rather than acknowledging that any black person or any slave had any intelligence whatsoever so and then it showed the uh... Edgefield feel Advertiser, the uh, newspaper, so the media was working hand in hand, you know, helping maintain the structural system, the system of white supremacy. So I'll mute my line on that. Thanks for taking the call.
6: Do we miss anybody else? We have about ten minutes left in the program. Do we miss anybody? Uh, anybody who hasn't been able to share uh, during the second uh, or after the second audio segment? Anybody not been able to share? I will assume we missed everybody. Will, uh, just add in about the the overall violence just all the way around that they talk about even the uh white on white crime that was discussed or even with that where they said it really wasn't that big a deal and it's not like you would lose your uh standing I think they when they're talking about uh Ben Tillman uh his uh, older brother uh George um where he ends up killing another white man, and you know, going to prison, and is still upstanding white man. <laughs> Just the uh, the intense pathology. We talked about that before, uh, Doctor Marimba Ani Yerugu, where she she talks about that the unstable and savage nature uh, of Yerugu uh, and how they must have a nigger they must have the non-white person, the victim of white supremacy uh, to be the target, the focus uh, of their aggressive, violent behavior. Uh, and if they did not have that source, it would be directed at other white people or they would have to make a nude nigger, basically. Uh, reminded me of that as well. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm super uh, excited. I, I feel like we heard uh, so many different lessons on Uh, the Civil War and talking about nullification and John Calvin and all that. They were talking about that a lot on Democracy Now. It's kind of wild to now be in this book and they are giving all the background uh, to the lead up to this. And even talking about killing other white people, which for me just again, we talk about that all the time. You cannot be, if you're a white person, you cannot be ignorant about racism. There are expectations. Uh, I think we heard that in the book this week as well, where they talked about how uh, the police system evolved out of the enslavement of black people, where you have white people who are organizing all of these different surveillance groups uh, to go out because they want to make sure that uh, enslaved black people are not going out on the plantation at night and frolicking around or getting their own ideas or even uh, trafficking, as they called it, uh, where they're engaged in some sort of commerce, perhaps even with other Uh, white people, uh, how this spawns other white people who have to patrol and police uh, and try to prohibit this uh, activity, uh, and that they can even discipline white people for that. Again, you cannot be ignorant about racism if you are white, Uh, even if you are one of these white people that is, you know, trading with enslaved black people. Uh, that doesn't say that you're ignorant about racism. That just means that, you know, hey, for whatever reason, I am going to choose to do this. That doesn't even say that I am not in support of racism, white supremacy, and that's something that, you know, we can't be uh, confused or distracted about that. Um, I have to look at the text to kind of see where, you know, Mr. Tillman, uh, at what point he kind of takes center stage and we get into some of his nefarious activities, but this could uh, be a good groundwork to kind of move forward. Uh, Last, I guess, like four minutes. Anybody have anything they want to make sure they got in before we wrap up uh, week one study session Ben Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy? Soon, folks are satisfied. Uh, Gus. Yes, sir.
1: I can, uh, reflect upon that question about fear, uh, because I believe in the book that they were using fear as a motivator to, uh, protect their so-called privilege and rights. So that was another way that uh, fear was used as uh, the way he was motivated, uh, less educated or other whites' collective mindset to protect their uh, so-called white privilege or rights. And then... uh, uh, that would mobilize, you know, the masses, so to speak. And so that was my take on it. I'll mute my line.
6: Uh, uh, anybody else have anything? Appreciate that, Mr. For Anybody else have anything they want to get in before uh, we conclude? Hello, can I be here? Yes, ma'am.
0: Yeah, I am having a hard, hard time hearing you um, on the on the recording on the radio recording. It, you know the reading and as well as this. Is there any way that you can um, standardize your um, your uh, volume?
6: I think I was uh, picking up some distortion on my end. I'm gonna. Check that out. Hopefully, it will not be. Uh, but
0: it was distorting It was distorting when you were when you were meeting What happened right. I like
6: to us? We were was. I think uh, I figured out what that is. It should not be a problem moving forward.
0: Uh, because what we like to do is, I like to go about my house business while I listen nice and loud to the program via the, the computer. But basically, um, you know, um, I, I think it's a great thing for us to to um, to. You know, understand. You know, put together. Understand how racism, white supremacy is decided upon. It's decided upon. How to execute it How to execute racism, white supremacy, and why? And because a lot of people who take in, they kind of, who kind of, you know, including me at times, put our heads in the sand and pretend like it's not happening. And, we, you know, they can kill you when your head to the sand. It doesn't make any difference. And so what we have to do is we have to understand it. But I do like, I wish that we would balance it with with good analysis, like we have Chris on But we have, you know, people who, you know, I don't know if we ever did her book because, you know, I haven't been in a group for even a year. But I would like to see some analysis, you know, some black analysis of, of of so far, what I even what I know was going to be expected that we're going to read,
5: because
0: I know just a little bit of the history, and um, that's pretty much it. I just think that you know we're just now getting into it, and I think it's a good idea. Stressful, and the other say that we need to understand racism like and that we need to study it. We need to do some study of it, and 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 that's it. I saw so far. You know, I thought I thought what I you know what I heard was really really interesting, and I would like to get into the meat of it. It's just it was really hard to hear, and I have to go back to the archives and try and hear it so I can get all of it. But I it. And I think this was a good pick, but do let's do um, a, a, um, a black author uh, who's now anal- doing an analysis of what's going on there. That would be great. But. Um, I just love, um, all the, you know, different people who are making that, and, you know, because are thinking, and people are making those good analysis, and just think it's absolutely great, and we have to do it, and we cannot become like them, like hating, hating them. We don't have time to hate them. We have to repair ourselves, and we have to move expeditiously forward and upward, and, um... Um but the thing that we have to do then after we do our uh, as we're doing an analysis of what they have done to us, we have to make sure that we're not doing it to each other. You know, if somebody does something incorrect, like I'm in a dispute, you have to stand up for yourself because of black self respect. You cannot let somebody just annihilate you and do all kinds of crazy stuff. We have to do that, but we still have to do it with respect and dignity towards um towards each other. But we we cannot um Uh, Exercise uh, the same cruelties to us and allow people, even who look like us, to exercise those cruelties to us. Great. Um, I appreciate the
6: commentary, man. That's kind of weird off the subject, but I definitely appreciate the commentary and the audio should be.
0: uh, I'm I'm sorry. I just feel like it's a part of it. It's just that's the analysis. We study it. I appreciate that,
6: though. We did our three hours. We don't do
0: it to each Um, other.
6: Right on. Thank you for that. Um, we did our three and we should be back uh, next week, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, and the audio should be uh, without any difficulties, uh, hopefully next week. Uh, but picking up on uh, page 30, still in chapter one uh, for Ben Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy. Uh, again, hope it is worthy of your time and energy now that the weather is warm. Folks could be out doing a lot of other things with their Friday evening. Uh, hopefully you are getting some information you can use. Uh, we should be back tomorrow. Same program time. We're uh, actually uh, an hour later. Uh, Saturday. It's always 9 p.m. Eastern, uh, 8 p.m. Central, and 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, looking forward, hearing thoughts the past week, uh, news, observations, certainly workplace racism. If uh, yeah, all of the uh, focus on South Carolina and some of the other things that have happened. If that's coming up on the job, uh, that'll be good to discuss as well. Looking forward to hearing from folks tomorrow evening. Uh, Again, I would encourage sobriety under the system of white terrorism. If you're going to be out and about, definitely do not consume alcohol uh, behind the wheel. Uh, I would even say be cautious about being a passenger. If you're going to be under the influence or even a pedestrian, racists. Uh, they will look for any reason to make things difficult for you and unnecessary problems. If you are going to consume any intoxicants, certainly not around whites and even be mindful of the other victims uh, whose presence you're going to be in. Uh, with that, thanks everyone for tuning in. We will see you all tomorrow evening in uh, segment number two in the book study series uh, next Friday 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice as soon as possible. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in.
5: Nigga,
9: you so
6: brainwashed.
5: I'm a victim, brother. You're
9: a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.
6: 18 plus.